No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 9. I have a feeling, uh, as I was just telling Nick before the show started, it's going to be a very uh, laid-back installment of the show. It's going to be fun because we're reuniting here with our old friend Nick Redfern, and he's got a ton of new books out. Uh, A whole bunch came out all in the last month, and we're going to try and touch on all the different... uh, topics here that he's got covered that have come out in these books. Let me get the list up here. I'm in, and I'm still in the old, uh, in, in a new sort of setting here to tape the show, so I'm a little distracted. Uh, but the books are Bloodline of the Gods, that one came out a few weeks ago, Chupacabra Road Trip, and uh, the Bigfoot book. And I also believe he has a Men in Black book that's coming soon as well, or, or out right now, I'm not sure, but we're going to find that out. He is, of course, Prolific paranormal author Nick Redfern and longtime friend of BOA Audio and saw he was doing the rounds here uh, over the last couple of weeks and said it's way overdue to get Nick on the program and uh, dig into his stuff. So welcome back to the show, Nick. Thanks for coming to BOA Audio. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to be back. Now tell me about this. First of all, how does this even happen? Uh, we'll break the fourth wall right from the get-go. How, how do you have all these books come out right at the same time? It's like uh, I have a theory that maybe you've never well, considered. I think that I think that your books are popular with young people, and then the publishers know this and put them out like around back to school time. That's my. <laughs> I never thought about that actually, but uh, no. What it, what it really comes down to is that, <clears throat> and with four different publishers, um, New Page Books, Llewellyn Books, Visible Inc, and my agent's own company, which is Lisa Hagen Books. And um, normally, uh, I mean, it's not like they sort of you know, talk to each other about when, you know, when are you putting that, that book out versus when are we going to put ours out. You know, they just put them out whenever they want to. Um, and it just so happened that, um, you know, that for the first time in like 20 years of writing books, um, different publishers decided to put them all out <laughs> within the same month, like uh, the latter part of August through mid-September. And, um, you know, a couple of them were actually written a long, well, I say a long time ago. A couple of them were sort of written um, six months ago, whereas a, a, one of the other ones was only finished um, like three weeks ago. But this, you know, the speed with today's technology, they can turn them around and put them out. Um, 
But, you know, if they'd all done sort of like the six months six monthly schedule, like maybe one or two of them wouldn't be out till sort of February. Hmm. Um but that's that's just how it's fallen, you know, so um it's been a <laughs> it's been a crazy time even by my standards, but not in a bad way, you know, it's in in a good sense. Um that they're all out and they're all different, you know, so they're not sort of competing with each other in that respect. No, it's pretty crazy. I was looking at it when I was putting this list together and I was just like, this is all over the <laughs> It is like amazing. This is why I, I hold you in such high regard, dude. Because you got three books that come out all, all within like a month, and they're all different stuff. It's amazing. No, I think well, it's actually four when you four, mentioned four. Yeah, the Men in Black, right? Yeah, Men in Black book actually came out um, like about ten days ago, Jeez. and um, so that's like the the third book I've done on the Men in Black mystery. So um, you know, it's uh, and there's always plenty to say on the Men in Black. It's uh, one of these things where I never. You know, if you write a book on specific subjects, you tend to find that people contact you if they've had their own experiences. So the more I write about the Men in Black, the more I tend to find, you know, people contact me. It seems like that topic definitely is, like, as you said, it's your third book. It seems like that one's really resonated with you in in a sort of a deep way to have put out three books. Uh, You know, it's like... A lot of folks mention it in the periphery, but you've really dug into it. What what do you think made it resonate with you? Well, you know, I mean, it's just one of those things where, you know, the whole Men in Black mystery fascinates me because there's so many different aspects to it. You know, you've got the conventional view that a lot of people have until they dig into it further, which is the idea that they're just government agents. But, you know, the more you look into it, you find they're clearly not. Um, You know, they look weird. They act weird, you know, they're sort of skinny, pale, have these bulging eyes, and they, you know, they don't even look human half yeah. the time. And you find a lot of cases that are linked to the world of, like, the paranormal, the supernatural, the occult, uh, all sorts of weird stuff. And, um, you know, so there's, and there's also a lot of theories as to what they are. You know, are they aliens? Are they paranormal? Are they time travelers? You know, who knows? And... Um, so, you know, it's something that I've sort of written about a lot, but I guess my sort of first exposure to the Man in Black mystery was when I was a kid, and I read, read um, John Keel's Mothman Prophecies. Right. And um, <clears throat> that, you know, that book, everybody thinks of the Mothman, but, I mean, for people who may not have read it yet, um, there's actually a lot of material in there on Men in Black encounters in and around Point Pleasant, which, uh, you know, Keel was one of the people who really emphasize sort of the weird creepy aspect of the men in black and you know when you're a kid sort of that classic thing of reading something like mothman in bed on a winter's night <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what i mean yeah. it kind of really resonates yeah i guess you never sort of really lose that initial you know fascination and so uh that's what sort of keeps me wanting to you know as long as i can keep being fresh you know in terms of putting out new material hmm. you know I'm, i'll be I'm continue doing the Men in Black book, and um, I actually got one coming out next year on Women in Black reports. And um, oh, nice! Yeah, now the Women in Black, you know, they're not actually as exciting as the title suggests. <laughs> <laughs> you, read, you read my mind, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're more like uh, you know, they're not kind of like um, like Abby off NCIS or nothing like that. They're more like um, pale faced, you know, Walking Dead. I mean, they kind of look like the female equivalent of the men in black. They look creepy and pale and anemic. And but do they weird. behave in the same? Not to jump into yeah. ahead of the uh, of the of the book, but do they? Do no, they, no, that's do not they Behave in the same way as the men in black, or are they just sort of like a different? 
No, no, they're quite similar. That you know, they don't always necessarily seem sort of accustomed to our ways and mannerisms. Um, you know, they knock on the door late at night. Um, they try and find ways into the house. And like with the men in black, they often use sort of cover stories, like they're census takers and things like that, and they need to ask questions. Mm. And, and then the questions start getting weird. You know, how many people live in the house? So that's fine, you know. But then it gets into, have you had any strange dreams? Have your children had any weird dreams? Oh, and God. That kind of thing. Oh, yeah, just all sorts of... And they look weird like the men in black. They've got this sort of starey almost emotionless but by the same token they seem filled with like almost hatred you know it's like a combination of no emotion but you know deep emotion as well it's hard to explain but um but yeah everything about them is sort of extremely similar to the you know to the men in black as well hmm interesting well the thing about them trying to get into the house reminds me of the whole black eyed kids thing so it makes well, you really wonder what what what's going on here mm. Well, actually, you know, in the new book, um, David Weatherly, who did the, the um, Black Eyed Children book, David wrote a paper for the new book um, that was all about the comparisons and the similarities between the men in black and the black eyed children. And there actually are a lot of similarities. For example, like, um, you know, both of them try and force their way into the homes or find an excuse to get in. Um, in the same way that the black eyed children wear black hoodies, the men in black wear black fedoras. They've both got that kind of weird, white, super smooth skin, you know, where they look sort of Botox to the max, do you know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and as I said, that they, they don't seem to hold conversation properly. You know, they're not able to get their words out properly or, or structure a sentence. And, um, and people get this weird vibe from them. And, and for the most part, both the men in black the women in black, and the um, the black-eyed children, they tend to come out at night, you know. So you have, with all three, you have almost like vampire-type qualities to them. Yeah, yeah. Makes you wonder where where the, where they where they're coming from. That's, I guess, the, what makes my uh, well. Yeah, I'm, I mean, the, I mean, I mentioned like the, you know, some of the more prevalent theories are sort of alien-human hybrids. Um, time travelers you know and their, yeah. their clothing's quite slightly out of fashion maybe that would explain if they're from the distant future and they're not entirely sure what's going on in the past you know that kind of thing but then you know i've got a lot of cases where the men in black have turned up at people's homes and the people have had no linkage to the ufo phenomenon at all but in some cases they were dabbling with ouija boards and you know sort of trying to summon up occult entities and things like this and you know with hindsight some of the people said they actually felt they kind of like opened a doorway or a portal that allowed something to come through in the guise of the men in black you know so in other words you've got a lot of strange stuff like this that that pushes things far away from the entire sort of tommy lee jones and will smith angle you know Right, exactly. Yeah, it's got it's got to be more complicated than just the government trying to scare people at this point. Once we especially well, once we bring in these this women in black yeah. and the black eyed children, it's like I feel like maybe we're dealing with something that crosses over from another realm, for lack of a better term. I'm not sure what though. Well, yeah, I mean that is actually probably the best way to look at it. I mean, you know, when I sort of talk about other realms of existence and dimensions, I mean we're never really, you know, well I should say we're not really 
fully conversant as what they may be. Exactly. But I mean, yeah. one of the one of the interesting things about the men in black, the women in black, and the black-eyed children is that they seem to appear out of nowhere, like on the doorstep or by people's cars, and they vanish into nowhere at the same time, you know, in the same way, mm. as if they literally did zip in and out of our reality. Now, you know, when you sort of look at these cases and you find these um, crossovers with the worlds of the occult and, and things like this, um, you begin to see that, it, you know, the genuine UFO, excuse me, the genuine Men in Black mystery is far different from the Hollywood version. But that said, you know, that there are some cases where we can trace some of these reports back to, you know, official agencies. But what I suspect has happened is that the, you know, government agencies, intelligence agencies, the military, recognize the existence of this weirder phenomenon. They may actually not know what it is, but they know it exists. Right. And they may have actually utilized it as a cover for when they want to, you know, interview and grill people who've had UFO experiences that they might not want getting into the public domain so to cover their tracks they may actually adopt the kind of style of the real men in black even though as i said they may not know what they are so you know this kind of confuses things in the sense of having um you know like potentially two at least groups of men in black you know uh, running in tandem with each other right the real ones and then the the ones from sort of perhaps like a rogue black project agency that thought well hang on a minute you know this is going to even if we don't know what these things are they're going to be the perfect cover for us if uh, if we need to go out and knock on people's doors and maybe they even adopted the same style of clothing and everything else so that people talked about it you know they just get laughed at or whatever right exactly i was just thinking as you were saying all that it's like it's, this is a i can see the government cooking up a scenario like where Let's say some guy has a really vivid and, and, and really good UFO experience, and, uh, you know, he's, he's starting to talk about it a little bit. They just they just find, like, a really tall agent, slap a fur suit on him, have him run across the backyard, and next thing you know, the guy's like, now i got Bigfoot in my, my backyard. Then no one takes the sighting <laughs> seriously anymore. No, you're right. You know, I mean, there's there's plenty of ways to, you know, discredit people, and sometimes it can be done in sort of the most obscure ways that um, have a lasting effect. And I think, you know, the the men in black tradition, if you like, is a perfect way of doing it in mm. terms of silencing people and making other people think, well, you know, this guy's just been watching too many movies or too many X-Files reruns, you know. Exactly, yeah. Um, and, you know, it would be a brilliant ruse, you know, to do that. It would work really well, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it, it stands to reason that, uh, like I said, it, it, it makes sense that they would use that as sort of a tactic, a distracting tactic, and also mm -hmm. to gather information, too, you know? Yeah. And I said, but the big irony is, um, you know, we've actually got some documents through the Freedom of Information Act where in the 50s and the 60s, people were contacting the FBI and the Air Force complaining that they'd been visited by these weirder men in black types, hmm. you know, and everybody at the time was saying, oh, well, the men in black are all from the government. And now through the Freedom Information Act, we've got Air Force and FBI documents, internal documents, where they're saying to each other, who the hell are these men in black <laughs> yeah. guys, you know? And every, everybody's pointing the finger at the government, and the government's actually, like, scratching its head saying, well, yeah, who are they? You know, they're nothing to do with us or you, so where are they coming from? Right, exactly, yeah. And then, like, kind of to connect what we were saying, then... You know, some of the more industrious intelligence agencies are probably yeah. like, "What is this Men in Black thing? We could, 
we could use this. This is good. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. And I think probably where it gets even more confusing is that it may only perhaps even be one or possibly two agencies that have done this, you know, and the rest of them are out of the loop, mm. you know, and um, it's not like the entire intelligence community knows. It may just be a small, almost like a rogue element, you know, like, like I said, like a black budget element, something like that. It stands to reason, yeah, absolutely. Like they wouldn't. The whole point would be to make sure nobody really kind of finds out about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I was thinking because uh, you, you, we, we kind of both touched on the idea that, you know, maybe they come from like some kind of other realm. I think that like, that you have to be to get to sort of break the wall here, get meta on the whole idea of the paranormal and stuff. It's like, yeah, I feel like it's okay to use that sort of I- idea in a sense, as mm-hmm. long as we're not like that other realm is called Nebulon, and they, you know, <laughs> start start start, you know, personifying this stuff. You know, yeah, that's I mean, mistake people make. Well, that that's I mean that's what I try to do with all this Men in Black stuff. I mean. You know, with with the new one, which is which is titled just Men in Black, you know, <laughs> it's an easy to remember title. <laughs> yeah. um, what I've done, you know, there's a bunch of people who've done various papers for the book and um, like a ton of witness reports. I think there's like 35 chapters or something all with, you know, from different people's perspective. And so, in other words, it's people giving their views on what the Men in Black might be and witnesses talking about their experiences and what they felt was going on but without me trying to force feed Mm. any particular theory you know down the reader's throat to say well this is the right one Mm. you know and or is there even just one and i think when we're dealing with sort of something that's really weird and controversial if we're going to start talking about doorways and portals and invoking these things and like psychic backlash and but in conjunction with ufos as well you know, we've got to be not just open-minded, but we've got to not be sort of dogmatically saying it's this or that because it's so weird, you know. We've got to admit to ourselves that we don't really have the answers yet, or at least we don't have the full story. You know? mm. We don't really have the words to explain it just yet. That's no, even part no. of the problem. Now, somebody in the chat room, I want to make sure I ask this. Uh, I have no idea what he's talking about. You probably do because you're well way more connected to uh, what's going on than I am. Uh, he says he wants to know if you think the guy in the Mary Robertson photo is an MIB. Oh, yeah, well, um, yeah, I do know about that. Okay, good. I actually I talked about that in my <laughs> second book, The Real Man in Black. Um, what happened was, in the mid-60s, um, Tim Beckley, you know, Tim's still on the scene today. Oh, yeah. Um, well, Tim and Jim Mosley, who died a couple of years ago, they were, you know, well, Tim still heavily investigates many black reports, but Tim and Jim in the 60s, you know, when the whole thing was going down with people like Keel and Steiger and Point Pleasant, you know, the many black were everywhere. And um, they investigated a case, or I should say they were on scene to investigate a case, where in Jersey City at the time, in the 60s, there was a, a couple, Jack and Mary Robinson, who um, were sort of the, like the at the cutting edge of the local UFO scene, you know, they were sort of the, the to-go-to people. And um, uh, Jack, you know, had a day job, Mary stayed at home, and one morning she phoned Jim to say that um, there was this weird-looking man in black um, staring into the apartments from the across the road. And now typically, um, you know, the, the man in black turn up once, and people don't see him again. You know, the threat once is enough. Hmm. Um then they turned up, like, excuse me, he turned up the second day, the third day, and the fourth day. And when, you know, it was 
when it was told to uh, Tim and Jim by Mary, they're like, well, holy crap, you know, this this is actually a, like a totally different situation where this guy's turning up every day. So they're like, well, if he's been here four days, maybe he's going to be here a fifth. And so they, Mary told um, Tim that, well, this guy comes every morning, like 8.30, just stands across the road in the shadows and the recess of the building opposite, staring almost like a zombie. And um, so they drove over and jumped in the car. It was like 8 in the morning, um, rush hour. And actually, you know, they knew where Mary and, and uh, Jack lived. And so um, they drove down the street. And sure enough, there was this guy in the doorway. And because it was the rush hour, they had to sort of take a side street and find a parking space and race back. But before they did, um, Jim managed to snap off a photograph. While Tim was driving, he leaned out the window and took a picture. And I actually reproduced that in the earlier book, The Real Men in Black. Oh. And, um, the, the, I mean, the picture looks weird. He kind of looks strange and enigmatic. And, and you can tell that when okay, Mary said he was just... Idea. When Mary says... He was just sort of vacantly staring outwards. That's what he looks like. He's got like a long black trench coat on, sunglasses and a fedora and just this blank expression. And he just looks almost like frozen, like more like yeah, a Yeah, he statue. looks like a doorman or a butler or something. Yeah, and he, he just looks like he's staring outwards. And that's exactly what Mary said, that he didn't take his eyes off the apartment all the time he was there. He just stood there vacantly and clearly stood out in a weird way. And, um, you know, certainly you can interpret the picture in different ways, and certainly people have. But, I mean, the very fact that he should have been looking into the windows of Jack and Mary's apartment when they were sort of the two main figures in Jersey City at the time in the UFO field, that's something to consider, you know. Um, you know, the, the background to the picture and the relevance to where he was standing in relation to the Robinsons' home. So, yeah, I actually do think that is a man in black. Now, whether it's one of the weirder ones or it's somebody from an agency, you know, trying to stir things up and get them all all worried and et cetera, I'm not really sure. But um, I do think that's a legitimate picture of a man in black. But, you know, which group? That's the big question. Yeah, yeah. Very weird. Yeah, it's a spooky-looking picture. Yeah, he just kind of looks... uh, he sort of looks off, you know what I mean? It's like there's something, he just, he does kind of look zombified, almost mm. blank yeah. and vacant, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's a weird, it's weird. It's a weird yeah. picture. Very interesting. Well, thank you to Red Sun Superman for mentioning that, because I, like I said, I had never yeah, heard cool. that, that story. I never mm-hmm. would have mentioned it. Um, Men in Black. Oh, so, oh, well, let me ask you this, because I, I hate to do this, but uh, it's been, this happens to me when with, with my show, is, uh, you know, I'll have a guest on, and, I'll be really turned on by their ideas and think that they're amazing and stuff, and then sort of it'll, I'll chew on it for a while and then sort of pose it to different people that are on the show mm-hmm. that I that I consider friends. I know you mentioned uh, the, our, our previous guest, Eric Wallet, his book Illuminations, um, mm-hmm. and I just kind of wanted your thoughts, not necessarily on the books. I don't, you're a busy man, so I don't even know if mm-hmm. you've had a chance to look at it yet, but uh, but the gist of it is is that UFOs are, are sort of, for lack of a better term, like poltergeist activity that are stuff that are created by the mind mm-hmm. uh, by people who see UFOs. And I know you've sort of looked at the Tulpa yeah. idea for a long time. And, and so, you know, and obviously you've looked at the UFO phenomenon for, a, for mm-hmm. a long time. I guess just generally, what do you think of that idea that, that the UFO phenomenon may be much more 
than uh, than just than, than what people may think it has been all along, which is like aliens and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, just before I say, before I let you go, because the one the one thing I wish I had a chance to talk to Eric and ask him or, or say to him, I, I love his ideas, but to me, I feel like there's so much going on with the UFO phenomenon that that it can't just be one one mm. thing even there. You know, like the argument against the ETH is like, well, it can't be just the ETH because of this, that, and the other thing. Part mm. of me thinks it can't just be a parapsychological thing because of this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's this all different things going on, but I think that not enough real estate is being uh, appropriated to the mm. idea that it comes from the mind. So I guess what do you, what do you think of all that? Because I'm sure – You've pondered this idea quite a bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing I would say is that I think the important thing to remember is that, you know, whatever the UFO phenomenon is, it's not one phenomenon. I think, you know, there's this tendency to pigeonhole it into it's either extraterrestrial from the believer's perspective or the debunkers say, you know, it's swamp gas and it's weather balloons, et cetera, et cetera, or drones today, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Very often, and I, very often it's the UFO community that's guilty of sort of polarizing it into those to, those two camps, you know. Right. But I think that if we ever get the, the full answers, you know, there's going to be probably multiple answers as, or explanations as to what's going on. And we could be looking at legitimate extraterrestrial um, intervention, if you like, or visitation. We could be looking at uh, interdimensional we could be looking at something paranormal for some cases. Some could be sort of weird atmospheric phenomena. Some could even be like, uh, I don't know if you know, um, Trevor, J- uh, Trevor James Constable's um, scenario of like sky beasts, as he talks about these sort of giant amoeba type things floating around the atmosphere, which he believes or believed, you know, were um, uh, at least responsible for some UFO sightings. And then, of course, you've got the you know the the sort of the para you know the, the the parapsychological angle and i actually think it's um it's scenario a scenario that does have some merit to it for certain cases now you can look at the ufo subject and recognize how the phenomenon has literally changed over the years as we've changed you know if you go back to the 1800s we had reports of the phantom airships then in the 1940s, during the Second World War, it was the Foo Fighters. Then in 46, it was the Ghost Rockets. 47, we had you know, flying saucers, flying discs, uh, but no aliens. Then in the 50s, we had like hairy dwarfs and the long-haired Space Brothers. Then by the 70s, we started to see the greys, and UFOs gave way to flying triangles. So in other words, in 70 years since Kenneth Arnold the phenomenon has significantly altered in its appearance and style. And that could be reflected by the phenomenon, um, I guess, you know, you, you could look at it, if you look at it from that perspective, um, you can make an argument that is it our minds that are creating something and it changes as our pop culture changes and our, you know, cultural beliefs on aliens and how they should look like changes. Yeah. Now, where I kind I don't so much say I disagree, but where I think things are a bit different, um, I mean, that book, the, the book Illuminations is a really good book. I, I'm actually doing a review for it for Mysterious Universe next week. Oh, nice. But where I, where I differ 
is that I actually think the phenomenon itself can get into the minds of us. Mm, and like, I think like it's a dance, like an interactive dance. Yes, and I think the phenomenon itself may actually um, manifest in different ways for the for the witness. In other words, a lot of the cases might be kind of like staged um, in the sense that, you know, they're designed to try and teach us something, and when they manifest before us, they do so in a way that, you know, in the 50s, they may well have, like I said, appeared as the Space Brothers. And... But perhaps that wasn't their real form. Perhaps they were sort of getting into our subconscious and pulling that imagery out and then sort of literally manifesting in that way for the witness. But the witness may never really seen the phenomenon in its, in its real form. Mm. You know, it could be like um, it alters because our perceptions of it alter. Um, and this kind of ties a little bit with, you know, the Tolper angle, the idea... Tulpas, for people who aren't aware, you know, the idea of thought forms where you concentrate on a certain imagery in your mind and you do it perhaps for weeks, you know, to the point where you even perhaps get yourself into an altered state um, of mind and um, you focus on this image of a specific thing like a, a grey or, you know, something like a big black cat with glowing red eyes and you then try and focus on externalising that imagery and then a week later, after all this sort of weeks and weeks of preparation and focusing, two doors down, you know, in your local newspaper, there's a report of how your neighbor saw this huge black cat with red eyes. And in other words, the idea is the human mind can construct something that can be externalized and then has its own sort of quasi-form of existence. You know, it's like you've created a mind mon monster and then you've unleashed it. Hmm. So, you know, I think I think all these um, theories have merit, and, and I think there's some degree of crossover between them. But again, for me, it's not like an either-or situation, you know what right, I mean? Right, exactly. It's, um, it's a combination of different phenomena, and some theories explain some aspects of the phenomenon, and others will explain other aspects. You know, obviously in today's world, some UFOs are going to be explainable away as drones, the more, you know, that more drones are flown more people are probably going to report stuff that actually were drones. So in other words, you know, the, the phenomenon is changing for down-to-earth reasons, but also for weirder reasons as well. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, yeah, the whole thing, that whole kind of idea struck me when I was looking, I was looking at the clouds and I was thinking to myself, and I mm. guess in a way you could kind of look at it this way where it's like, uh, to, to really boil it down, not to get too basic on it, because then I'm afraid people are going to be like, but all said UFOs are clouds. I'm not saying UFOs are clouds. I'm saying how there's all different kinds of shapes of clouds, shapes and forms of clouds, and they're, brought, they're, they're created by different sort of weather effects. It's like I think maybe that might be part of UFOs. It's like there's different shapes and, and scenarios for UFOs, and they're brought about by different uh, effects. You know, yeah. we're not talking about like astronaut some as some atmospheric effects, sure, but mm -hmm. also psychological effects and magnetic effects, all the different things we don't know about yet. You know. Yeah, and I think the problem is, you know, when ufology kind of kicked off in the um, in the late like forties, you know, the group started to be set up in the early fifties. It was a more, I guess, more a simple time where people looked at it. Well, the air force is hiding the truth, and flying saucers are nuts and bolts craft from this star system or as some people said, you know, from Venus or wherever. Um, 
But when you look at the, you know, the situation from then and now, the reason things have changed is because we have a lot of these so-called, you know, what we might call rogue cases where they don't sit comfortably into the ETH. But that doesn't exclude the ETH. It just means, you know, that these particular cases have to go into a different category. And, and that's one of the things that kind of pisses me off with a lot of people in ufology. They're so stubborn that it's either extraterrestrials or, you know, we relegate the cases that aren't. Um, and for me, you know, if I see cases that are really interesting, but they don't sit well within the accepted stance of, oh, you know, well, it's nuts and bolts UFOs and aliens coming here to steal our DNA. If it doesn't fit comfortably into that arena, you know, I don't ignore it because I'm worried what, you know, people are going to say or peers are going to say. You know, I don't care about reputations and all that crap. Um, you know, I say what I what I think, and, and I think that we are dealing with stuff that goes far beyond just aliens. And I think one of the problems why we haven't, you know, in many respects made a lot of advances. You know, we've got a lot of re more reports but reports aren't necessarily advances, you know what I mean, in the right, subject. Right. And I think one of the reasons we don't is because the UFO community, to a degree, has self-censored itself. That's to say, you know, you go to the average um, established UFO conference by, you know, groups that have been around for decades, and you'll get pretty straightforward lectures, government documents, abductions, etc., you know, military files, pilot encounters. You know, I, I just wish sometimes I could go to a conference where, yes, there would be a, a lecture on, say, UFOs and military pilots, but then the next one could be how on hallucinogenics open doorways to other realms where these things may exist. And then the next lecture could be, you know, like the men in black and, and parallel dimensions or the links with things like demonology and the men in black and then have somebody else talking about um, links, be, you know, crossovers between Bigfoot sightings and UFOs, and then have one on freedom of information documents. But you just rarely get that because, you know, a lot of these groups are structured around holding up the status quo, and the status quo is it's got to be alien, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also, you know, I'll give you a good analogy. It's like it's like the liquor store down the street from me. They only stock IPAs. Uh, it's all they have is IPAs. I said to the guy, "Why do you? Why, dude? You got to get something other than IPAs. I hate IPAs. They're, they're awful. You know, I'll have one every now and again, but I really not a big IPA fan." He was like, "Well, the owner really likes IPAs, so that's pretty much all we carry." So <laughs> that's what's the problem with these UFO no, conferences. Yeah. You know, it's the guy in charge is like they, they're the ones that kind of uh, they're the gatekeeper on that on the ideas. Well, yeah, and the problem is, you know, that um, I think steps have been taken to try and rectify that, but there's still this situation where we're in a position that, you know, the mainstream conferences and things like this, a lot of it is, is basically, unfortunately, just preaching to the converted, so to speak. I don't mean that disrespectful to people who go to conferences, because I go to conferences to listen as well. I just wish we wouldn't have to keep hearing the same thing over and over again you know the latest on area 51 the latest on roswell you know we need to try and not just keep reporting on things but also you know expose people who are interested in the phenomenon to all these other theories and other ideas um 
And I just don't get why some of these groups and people, you know, won't talk about some of this publicly. I mean, I know some well-known figures in ufology who had some really weird experiences, like strange synchronicities and paranormal stuff when they've been investigating UFOs, which clearly don't fit well in like a, just a straightforward nuts and bolts angle. But I know, but I've spoken to them, and they won't talk about it publicly because they feel, you know, that they're the guy who writes about the government documents, or they're the guy who talks about implants, you know, which is sort of not all oh, nuts and bolts stuff. That's frustrating. And, you here. know, yeah. And for me, it's like, well, you know, grow a pair of balls. You know, if, if stuff's happened to you, and when it's weird, and it's part of the phenomenon, what you know, and you're criticizing agencies for withholding material. And what are you doing? You withhold the material as well. You know, it's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's, yeah, yeah. It's it's really frustrating to hear that. Because it's like, you know, I've kind of beaten it like a drum here on this show. And I know you're of the same opinion. It's like, I'm just trying to figure this out. You know, I'm just trying to figure it out. So to me, mm-hmm. it's like, give me the best tools possible to figure this out. So if to... to to, for 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 someone who's like, well, I'm I'm kind of known as this sort of researcher, so I can't, you know, reveal that. Mm-hmm. They're just they're gaming the system in a bad way. They're handicapping the system, you know, the system of trying to figure it out. They're handicapping the process of trying to figure it out. It's like let's all just be open, honest, and maybe we'll get to the bottom of this. I don't know. Mm. Well, the problem is, um, the, the, you know, the, there are people it, involved. That's. <laughs> well, that, that's right. You know, the, the, yeah, the problem is when you start sort of supporting one scenario, one theory. What often happens is people get backed into a corner, and for some weird reason, which I've never really got, I've found that people, a lot of people in the UFO in the UFO field, are quite hostile to the idea of changing their views on something. You know, it's like, well, you're the Area 51 guy, or you're the person who investigates cattle mutilation. You think it's this and you're the person who investigates abductions, and you think it's this that's doing it. Right. You know, I, I don't see any problems as more data comes in that you modify or change your views. You know, it's kind of like you believe in Santa Claus when you're five, but as more information comes in and you start to think, well, how does he get around all those chimneys every night? <laughs> you know, yeah. around the planet. Then you, your views start to change. And I know that's like a like a more amusing sort of, parallel but it's true with ufology or it should be you know i always make it clear to people when i'm or i try and write make it clear to them that when i'm writing books that look this is these are the theories on what the men in black might be or these are the theories that you know what may be going on at area 51 this person says this this person said that this is the experience that another person had that pushes it down an occult path here's something else that maybe suggests the time travel angle and I try and honestly tell people that the reason, you know, I, I don't present different theories and scenarios because I'm fence-sitting. I do it because we really don't have the answers. You know, we, like I said, we have a lot of data which is open to interpretation. And, it, and there's nothing wrong with reviewing stuff and looking at it and interpreting it, providing you're honest with your reader that that's what you're doing. Hmm. And And I think the problem comes when... You know, you have authors who say UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft from Zeta Reticuli. We don't know that. That's a theory based on data acquired by the UFO community, and right. that's when the problems can start. Yeah, I heard a guy the other night say there there are good aliens and there are bad aliens. It's like you have no idea. You have no idea if there are good aliens or bad aliens. No. 
Well, that's, yeah, that's like ridiculous because it's like saying there are good and bad people. You know, we're all capable of good and bad. You know, most people know that it's wrong to commit murder. But on the other hand, you know, somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, you see them flashing a, a blade, you've got a, you know, a pistol in your drawer, they're on your property, it's two in the morning, they're coming towards you. You know, what are you going to do? That doesn't make you a murderer. That means you're someone defending your life. So in other words, you know, the idea that there are good and bad entities out there is is like saying, you know, there are good and bad people. No, there's, you know, we're all complex human beings capable of different emotions and, you know, actions. And, mm. uh, you know, so, so to paint this sort of dumbed-down idea that they're good or they're bad, I mean... You know, that that in itself is a stupid thing, really. Right, right. Let's just prove that. It's like saying there's good and bad unicorns. It's like we, we need – let's get to let's get, let's get to prove it first. Now, a uh, guy on Facebook sent me a message, and I, I want to make sure I ask you about this because it, it did fascinate me when he sent it. Uh, and so if I if I don't look at it now, I'll forget. He said back in 2000, January of 2014, you wrote a, a blog post, and you mentioned uh, John Fuller. And uh, you said, uh, regardless of what people might think, there is a major MK Ultra John Fuller link. Uh, oh yeah, uh-huh. and then that his private notes show he was fascinated by MK Ultra, LSD, and mm-hmm. uh, Pont Saint Esprit France affair. And uh, you say not many have looked into this, but I have, and I have something coming mm-hmm. out on all this in a few months. Uh, something that will present Fuller in a whole new light. And as far as I can tell, and this guy, I guess, uh, never saw anything that came out. So what, what what's uh, what's the story with your research into John? Yeah, John? well, I'm actually still working on this. Okay. I was probably preempted the, uh, you know, it, uh, because more information's come in. Okay. But yeah, Pont, Pont Esprit. Um, Basically, it's this story from France in the early 1950s where this little village, the people were affected in a very strange fashion and started having these weird visions of strange creatures flying and running around the town. You know, it was like something straight out of a horror film. Hmm. Now, the official line is that um, they were essentially affected by uh, something called ergot, which is a rye. And, um, and and it actually does cause graphic hallucinations. And the theory oh, wow. was, you know, they, they, they were sort of tainted and they ate the food and it caused them to flip out, you know, and hallucinate and trip. And um, But in a really bad way, mm. you know, in a, in a like a horrific way, like something straight out of a horror film. Now, what's interesting is that one of the first guys who was sort of at the forefront of the whole MK Ultra thing when it kicked off, a guy named Frank Olson, who actually uh, fell or was pushed to his death um, out of a hotel window in uh, 1953, a very controversial story. Um, he actually travelled to the area twice, and a few documents have now surfaced suggesting that this was some sort of early sort of psychological operation using mind-altering substances, possibly even something like... Um, almost like aerosol-based, possibly, and and tested out on this little town, you know, and we saw the unfortunate results. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but John Fuller wrote an entire full-length book on this French story. It's called The, uh, the Day of St. Anthony's Fire. And, and it tells a whole story of, you know, the hallucinations, the graphic hallucinations, people who had long-term effects, the nature of the little town and how it all began and the theories and you know i mean fascinating story but on top of that um 
Kale in excuse me, Kale <laughs> um, Fuller in the late 1950s was actually approached by some of the scientists working on MK Ultra who wanted to get the story out and suggested that he could be the guy to do that. So, in other words, when it was initially thought that you know he just had an interest in this um, this French story when he wrote his book in 1970, um, what we actually find is that he was exposed to the MK Ultra phenomenon in the 19, late 1950s, and you know there've been a number of cases that where people have suggested UFO cases that may have been staged, kind of like a an MK Ultra type operation, really to see how the human mind can be altered. And what's interesting, of course, he's you know he wrote the uh, interrupted journey on the Betty and Barney Hill case, and there've been suggestions. Well, could that have been some sort of MK Ultra type operation? And granted, it's a controversial question, but if there's even sort of a, an inkling of it, what you've got, you've got Fuller linked to, you know, there's some of the scientists that were working on the program in the 50s and who wanted the story out and asked, literally asked him to be the guy to write it. Then you have the, him taking part in the, you know, the Betty and Barney Hill thing. And then in 1970, he's writing a full-length book all about these events in France decades before the whole MK Ultra connection came out. You know, you wouldn't know there was a connection back then because, you know, the story wasn't out there from that perspective. But Fuller was tied to all of these different aspects. And, um, you know, so that there's a bigger story to be uncovered still. And some of it, I think, well, I know he's going to turn out to be fairly controversial. But in fairness, yeah, I was actually a little bit sort of jumping the gun in terms of anticipating when I'd be done with all this research. Mm. <laughs> so. Well, you started up because that guy was really interested. He emailed me and sent me a Facebook message, so I wanted to yeah. make sure I. Well, have you know, that. I mean, uh, well, that's yeah, I mean, again, go ahead. It, well, I was going to say it comes down to you know I don't stir stuff shit up for the sake of sake of stirring shit oh, up. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I, no, no, no. I do it because if things need shaking up, and I see problems, and I see strands and scenarios that push things in a different direction, I think the responsibility is on the part of people like us to share that with the people who buy the books or listen to the radio shows or watch the TV shows because, you know, I think it's sort of wrong to just sort of appease one belief system or, or you know, sort of just to promote one thing for the sake of it. Right. No, I mean, I think if something goes down a new path and the the obligation is on our part to look into it, no matter where it goes, and if it changes certain scenarios and belief systems well that's what it does but that's better than living in a world where you just blindly accept it all on faith that this is what's going on you know i don't know how some of these people that are still married to the eth can still be in this after so long i think i would have thrown up my hands at this point you know oh well i can tell you why i can tell you why with some of the older ones particularly you know i said well what do you think about things like um the links between the men in black and, and occult cases, and they don't even know about them. You know, I said, what do you think when, like Stan Gordon's book, Silent Invasion, oh, it's a great talks book. about, um, yeah, a really good book, where he talks about links between UFO activity and Bigfoot, and you get the response, oh, that's all bullshit, you know. <laughs> um, in other words, the when I said it's like a self-censorship, it, very often it's not just a self-censorship from the perspective of the audience, I know certain researchers who self-censorship themselves mm. by not even reading the literature that 
does push things in a different direction. You know, they they just won't touch it because maybe sometimes they're just fearful of what they're going to find out. Yeah. You know, but to me, that's like a cowardly approach. You know, I mean, it's madness. We're looking for answers. It's madness. Yeah, we're looking for answers, and you're. You know, you're worried about what you're going to find. Well, <laughs> to me, that's... And I don't get why it would matter if the phenomenon's not extraterrestrial, but instead was interdimensional or time travelers. Well, it would still be a fascinating revelation, you know what I mean? Right. So I, I don't understand why it's got to be extraterrestrial, why people are so drawn to that and feel they've got to uphold it, you know. It's, Yeah. It's too bad because there's people that I like that are like that too. It's it's frustrating, you know. Mm-hmm. It's not just people that I'm like, ah, screw those guys, they're morons. It's like, what do you, why, you know, why yeah. why are some people I like like this? I don't get it. I don't get why, but well, you know, I think part of it also comes down to for certain people, it's an industry. Mm. Now, you know, people say, well, Nick, you write UFO books, and you know, I, I work, yeah, you know, I work full time as an author. I mean, I don't earn a living from UFO books. I mean, I'm sure as most people who actually write UFO books know, and I'm sure you know as well, Tim, talking to people, you know that the number of people who earn a living from writing UFO books is sort of minute. I mean, I I couldn't, Hmm. you know, but I do earn a full-time living as a writer. But I mean, a good 60% of what I do is sort of just not even paranormal-based. I do like a lot of writing for music magazines. Right, right. do a lot of proofreading and editing um, services for authors on all sorts of different topics, nothing to do with the paranormal. But I know of some people who, you know, to them, when it's their entire income, you know, I'm not going to name names, but some of them who to their entire income is the UFO subject, and they know that if they talk about aliens and crashed UFOs, they're going to constantly keep getting booked on the lecture circuit year in, year out. Right. For like 15 or 16 conferences, they're going to pay them well. And basically, they're playing it safe, and they're rocking the boat. And you know, they're not rocking the boat. Mm. I don't see anything wrong with playing dangerous and really rocking the boat. Not for, again, not for the sake of it, but just to show people that hey, you're not you're not being given the full story when you go to these lectures. You're being given one person's view, and who a person who doesn't even acknowledge that there are other views. Right. Right. It's a big old mess. Now, here, let me let me segue into the Bigfoot book in a way. Mm. You've looked at the Bigfoot phenomenon, obviously. Uh, I find the whole let's let's compare the people though, because I'm enjoying this conversation. So let's, I guess, how would you compare sort of like the research community looking for Bigfoot to the people in in the UFO field? Is there is there much similarity or or is there much difference here? No, there's actually a lot of similarities, actually, Tim. I mean, in the same way that the ETH dominates you know, the UFO field, Bigfoot researchers, for the most part, you know, I mean, I've got a lot of friends in the Bigfoot research community. Um, I'd say the big difference is where there's this sort of vehement, you know, thou shalt not upset the ETH angle in UFO research, you know. It's like the flesh Um, and blood thing, right? Yeah, within Bigfoot research, you have the flesh and blood group, which is the clearly the dominating number of people, you know. I mean, I couldn't tell you what the percentage yeah. is, but the vast majority of people who investigate, research, and write about Bigfoot hold that Bigfoot is like a, um, a North American equivalent of a, an African gorilla, but we're not kind of sure, exactly sure what kind it really is, mm. you know, that sort of thing. Right. Um, but then you have, you know, the theories of people like me and Stan Gordon, where we look at the 
sort of the rogue cases where people have seen Bigfoot vanish in a flash of light or dematerialize, or they're seen at the same time in the same location as weird lights in the sky. Things like this, or when Bigfoot can have an uh, effect reportedly on like electrical systems, this kind of thing. And um, weird, okay. Now, you know, again, a lot of people in the Bigfoot community just won't have anything to do with those cases. I don't see so much of the argument, you know, the argument angle that we get in ufology with debating it. Most people, I think, in the Bigfoot field just don't bother dealing with it at all. Right. So in, in that respect, it is similar to ufology, but I don't see as much infighting in cryptozoology because they're just doing their own thing rather than, you know, debating on this. But, um, but yeah, again, I mean, you know, people ask me, do I think the Bigfoot phenomenon is a real one? Yeah, I do. However, in saying that, when you look at the nature of the phenomenon and all these weird rogue cases and strange aspects, to me, Bigfoot is far more or, or far less than just a flesh and blood animal. There's something else weirder going on with it. Mm. And again, I don't understand why people get defensive about the idea that Bigfoot isn't just a large ape. You know, again, if we found it was that Bigfoot is real, but it has some really weird aspects to it, well, that's still as fascinating as the idea that, you know, against all the odds that colonies of giant apes could live in North America. Right. Um, I mean, what's the big deal with uncovering the truth of Bigfoot and finding it's really strange, but it's not just a gorilla? I don't get why it has to be this or that, and they're angry if it's not. I just, I just don't understand that, other than that it's like um, sometimes backing yourself into a corner and supporting one scenario and then feeling, well, I've supported this for 20 years, and how can I now go back on it? Right, and like that's, it's on cost. And that's why, you know, I don't put myself in that position. I try and present theories and ideas and concepts and data and put it out for people to see, but then point out that, you know, this is where we're at right now. The tables could completely turn tomorrow as a result of something totally unforeseen. And, um, and that's the way I think, I think that's a responsible way to do it in Bigfoot, you know, with the Loch Ness Monster, paranormal phenomena, the whole thing, you know. Yeah, any of this stuff. Now, the Bigfoot book, that's like, yeah. a, that's like an A to Z book, right? Tell us, tell yeah, us about that's it. what it is. Yeah, well, well Visible Ink Press, who uh, put the book out, I've done several books with them. The previous one in that same style was a zombie book. And they're, they're like, like you said, A to Z books of like 400 pages, 150,000 words, and 200 entries. So with the Bigfoot one, you know, you've got the, the ones you'd expect, like A for Abominable Snowman, B for Bigfoot, Y for Yeti, um, things like that. But then there's sort of I for Invisibility and Bigfoot, or I and Interdimensional Bigfoot, that kind of thing. Nice. And, um or P for paranormal and Bigfoot, that kind of thing. Right. So in other words, it covers all aspects of the Bigfoot phenomenon, but, but not just Bigfoot, but sort of overseas versions as well, like the Chinese version, which is called the Yeren, um, the Australian equivalent, which is the Yowie, um, ancient wild man reports from Europe, which sound more like primitive humans than sort of mm. ape-like animals. And then there's things like Bigfoot conspiracies. Uh, one of the big... One of the big Bigfoot conspiracies is the the idea that when Mount St. Helens exploded in 1980. Oh, yeah, I love this conspiracy theory, yeah. Yeah, 
that supposedly... I mean, there have actually been reports of Bigfoot on Mount St. Helens going back decades and decades, nothing new. But when Mount Helens exploded and you know the military and the emergency services were out there in force because, I mean, literally dozens of people were killed, thousands of animals were injured, you know, regular animals um, were, were injured and killed. And so a lot of emergency services and the military went out and did a really good job of you know, helping out and, and clearing things up and getting people out of the air and, you know, bringing in emergency, ply, emergency supplies. But there's this enduring story. It's actually come from seven or eight different people with military backgrounds to the effect that when the military were out there and dropping resources in, et cetera, et cetera, and also helping, you know, people who lived in the woods or and the animals as well, they stumbled on a number of Bigfoot, bodies sort of badly charred and possibly even some injured from from slightly injured to critically injured and supposedly they airlifted them out with sort of like double rotor helicopters in huge nets for for the nearest military base and um you know the, the stories kind of sound like the crypto equivalent of the roswell crash you right know. yeah yeah the military goes in and finds these strange bodies and they take them to a military base and it's all hushed up so there are parallels and some people say, well, it parallels these stories because it's like a, you know, just a tale. It's an urban myth. But, you know, we do have, admittedly, a number of people who have come forward and they do have military backgrounds. And um, so in that sense, you know, it could make sense. But the, the intriguing question, of course, is why would the existence of Bigfoot be covered up in the first place? Right. You right. know, it's not like we cover up the fact that the government hides the fact that bears exist or mountain lions. You yeah, know. exactly. Yeah. So why Bigfoot? And the only thing I can kind of think of is, well, there are actually several things, and this gets to Bigfoot conspiracies I talk about in the book as well. What if Bigfoot is actually some sort of primitive human? And would that mean, if that was the case, you know, in a bizarre situation, would it be given rights? Right. And if so, would it mean that the national forests would be out of bounds to, you know, the general public? And what happens if somebody shot and killed one? Mm. You know, could they be arrested for murder if it was proved, you know, the first person killed someone, killed one of these things, and that proved it was semi-human? I doubt, nothing would happen to that person, because how, how would they know it was semi-human? But if it was proved, and then afterwards anybody else shot and killed one deliberately, you know, they could be facing a murder charge. And, of course, the other more disturbing conspiracy theory, you know, is sort of like the missing 411 thing that, you know, Bigfoot is actually living on people. Mm. Um, and maybe the government knows and there's this deep concern that there's, you know, we don't control the forests. You know, they do. Um, so there's entries on all those kind of things, That's sort of the, yeah. the down-to-earth stuff and entries on things like the Patterson film and, addressing as to where you know the levels of um credibility or not surrounding it um the studies on entries on for example uh famous footprints that have been cast plaster casted that kind of thing and mm. um audio recordings of bigfoot there are entries on that and you know talking about some of the more interesting ones so so i've tried to cover just about all aspects of the bigfoot phenomenon around the world and also, you know, as I said, the, the spin-off things like film footage, photographs, audio, mm. um, the invisibility angle, the psychic angle, the, the UFO connections, the conspiracies, and, and going right back, as I said, to ancient times with wild men reports and stories of surviving pockets of Neanderthals and things like that, which might 
explains some of the weirder reports coming from Russia, where they actually, you know, do sound more like a primitive type of human than a than any kind of ape, if you like. Now, Greg, uh, obviously you know Greg, Greg Bishop. He uh, yeah, he's told the story a bunch of times on the show where the he I forget where he heard this whole story, but I'm sure you've heard it. Something about how like Bigfoot like mimics the speech of people. Like people are out in the woods, they're talking, and then all of a sudden it'll be like Dave, Dave, or something like that. Like they all be you know the guy will call out to his friend, and then mm. the Bigfoot will well, vocalize uh, the language. Have, yeah. you, have you heard of this whole thing? Well, the, yeah, there's a, probably the most creepy and sinister one is the, and this has actually cropped up in a, quite a few cases, where, Bimic, uh, where Bigfoot seems to mimic the um, cries of babies. Oh, God. And this, yeah, this gets into, like, sinister age because people have actually felt the Bigfoots were trying to entice the people into the woods to help the baby, you know. Oh, Jesus. And they got, like, a really weird vibe that it actually wasn't a baby after all. It was something mimicking the cry of a baby, and um, and probably the most well, I'd not say probably the weirdest um, audio recording. If you Google Bigfoot plus Sierra sounds, and you'll hear this really fast, loud chatter, which has been studied and analysed, and people cannot make the sort of noises that are on there, and it's almost like a it's, it, imagine a language that you don't understand, but you can clearly tell it's a language, that it's not just random, hmm. you know, jumbled up noises. And that's what those Sierra sounds sound like. It's like a, a very fast, animalistic language, but which has intelligence to it as well. And the speed of it and the tone and the frequency and the up-or-down levels, you know, it's just simply something that people cannot do at all. Jesus. Yeah. This took a creepier turn than I expected. Yikes! Baby crying—that's creepy. That's really yeah. That's we can find a lot of, for a while, dude. Yeah. <laughs> we can find a lot of stories like that around the world, from South America, with Bigfoot in the U.S., and from Russia as well, where you know they all talk about these, um, you know, sightings of um, these creatures, and, and in relation um, to Bigfoot. I mean, exact for an example. You know, I live just outside Dallas, and I can drive about 30 miles away to a little town where there's um, a bridge known locally as Crybaby Bridge. It was actually knocked down a couple of years ago, but they used to get numerous reports from around there. And that's probably one of the reasons why the locals gave you that name, because they used to hear these crybaby sounds. And um turns out, you know, the, the bridge was actually like 40 feet above this river you know there's no street lights around so you're out there in pitch black darkness and you're hearing this little baby crying underneath the bridge or whatever you know i mean who knows what would happen if you got down there and um so yeah a lot of a lot of really sort of like i said deeply creepy things like that yeah weird 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 all right so that's the bigfoot book folks go out and uh check that out that sounds like a great book for someone who Obviously, who likes the Bigfoot phenomenon, but also it sounds like a good gift book. You know what I mean? For like a, well, somebody that, yeah. you know, so you you have a family friend that's always kind of bugging you about Bigfoot. And you can kind of be like, here's this book. covers just about everything you'd want to know about Bigfoot. So Yeah, well, the, one of the reasons why I like doing those books for Visible Ink Press is because, you know, sometimes, even for me, if I'm reading a book, you know, sometimes you want a book where you haven't necessarily got to read it from page one to 400. Mm to get the gist of it, you know, in 
in, in order. Um, you know, with a book like this, you can sort of just dip into it wherever you want because there's like two en- uh, 200 entries, each one about 900 words. Um, you know, and you can start at the A's or you can start at the F's and then go on to the V's and then jump back to the A's, you know, just dip into it however you want to. So. Okay, now let's talk about the newest book, or uh, relatively newest, I think. Mm-hmm. Chupacabra Road Trip, is that the uh, most recent yeah. one? Yeah. Okay, now let, t- t- you know, straighten me out here, uh, Nick, because I'm not as connected mm-hmm. as... I'm not like these people, We and <laughs> I feel bad we talked about earlier. I'm not one of these people who, who is disconnected from the paranormal because I... Because I uh, have some set mindset about things. I'm mm-hmm. just too lazy to really do a lot of uh, work. <laughs> I, I, I get, I see most of the big stories that come through, but I don't yeah. have my finger on the pulse as well as you do. What the hell? What the hell happened here with the chupacabra? It's like a one-hit wonder in a way. It sort of burst on the scene. Everyone went crazy mm-hmm. for it. Now it's sort of like touring around county fairgrounds, like Ario <laughs> Speedwagon does in the summer. Uh, you know, showing up on the local news every couple of months with like a, a dog with mange, and it's like mm-hmm. that's not chupacabra. Tell me about the book, obviously, and yeah. and and sort of give me give me give me an idea of what the hell the state of the chupacabra is, because in my mind it's like something that exploded in in uh, Puerto Rico and and some Latin countries mm-hmm. about twenty years ago ish, and then uh, you know it's kind of reverberated more in the psyche of people. Uh, and and that that maybe whatever exploded back then isn't even isn't even around anymore because I don't seem to hear much about it. But that's that's my very very finger off the pulse uh, idea of what's going on. So what what the hell's going on with the chupacabra? Well, you've kind of answered it yourself, but <laughs> but to, to kind of sort of get to the sort of the the heart of it, the, the book itself, Chupacabra Road Trip, is like the title suggests. You know, it's it's a road trip style study of cryptozoology and i mean a lot of the cryptozoological investigations i go on i write them up in road trip style because that's the way they happened you know and um yeah. so i take a lot of notes when i'm on the road and 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 i enjoy writing that style you know kind of it was a dark and stormy night and i jumped in the jeep spun the tires and headed off looking for the chupacabra you know that that's how it happens that's how i write it right plus it gives and, you a, um, a, a neat way of sort of writing different styles of books yeah that's right yeah very different to like an a to z book on bigfoot which is just you know a to z entries or even you know with the men in black books um but uh, you know i write it as it happens on the road so you know it's like the morning you're looking for the chupacabra the afternoon you're interviewing a witness and then in the evening you hanging out with the film crew you're with, you know, knocking back beers in the bar, talking about blood-sucking vampires in Puerto Rico. Right. And, um, but basically, the the book is sort of a study of the 11 years of expeditions I've done since 2004, back and forth to Puerto Rico, Mexico, and around the U.S., looking into the Chupacabra phenomenon. And I've been, been to Puerto Rico on many occasions now, the first time with a crew from the Sci-Fi Channel for a show called Proof Positive. And um, if you go to YouTube, somebody's uploaded that episode. So if you go to YouTube and type in Proof Positive plus Chupacabra, you'll find that episode. I think it's split into three parts. And that nice. was broadcast in 2004. But the basic, what it was, the, this show, um, Proof Positive, it was uh, like a cross between the X-Files meets CSI, where they wanted some forensic analysis of certain materials to make a case. So we went out there, me and a friend of mine from England, John Downs, and um, we went out for about, I think about 10 days, sort of traveling around and interviewing witnesses. And that's what really got me 
involved and interested, you know, speaking to ranchers whose animals had been attacked by this creature that they described as having kind of like a chimpanzee-like body in the sense it could walk on two limbs and four, but it was hairless, and it had this sort of strange row of spikes on its head and neck, like a like a punk rock mohawk going down from the top of its head down the back of its neck. Hmm. And um, some people even described it as having bat-like wings, you know, sort of membrane-type wings. And um, and he got the name Chupacabra because Chupacabra is a Spanish term for goat sucker. And a lot of the animals that were initially killed were goats. And there were theories and rumors that the animals were drained of significant amounts of blood. And um, then I went back in 2005 and, you know, every couple of years after that. And the most recent one for a, a new show on the Travel Channel called Mysteries at the National Parks. And that's that's all also on youtube but i think it's a copyright <laughs> issue because he keeps getting taken down every couple of weeks <coughs> excuse me yeah <coughs> every couple of weeks but if you go to youtube right now and type in mysteries at the national parks chupacabra you'll find the episode that i filmed recently which which was just aired a couple of months ago nice and um so you know i've had a lot of experience speaking to people and getting their stories and for me there's no doubt that the original chupacabra was and still is a real phenomenon now, granted, we don't get many new reports coming out of Puerto Rico today, but what I found going to Puerto Rico is that there's actually a real reason why that is. You know, unfortunately, a lot of the people on Puerto Rico, and particularly the ranchers, unfortunately just aren't that well off, you know. And if their animals are being killed in an unusual fashion, their first thought is not, oh, you know, well, we need to contact, you know, this radio show or that TV <laughs> yeah. company. They're just they're worried about their livelihood, how they're going to put food on the table for their wife and kids you right. know, next week. And that's totally understandable. You can't blame them for that. So in other words, you only find out when you go there for extensive time and you speak to the people, you know, you show respect and gain their confidence. And every time I go there, I, like even the most recent one, I've got sort of five or six new cases each time, sometimes more. But unless you go looking, these stories don't leave Puerto Rico um, because hardly anybody's investigating them anymore. And, you know, the farmers have no interest in wasting time hmm. building a blog, you know, about my Chupacabra attack or anything right, like that. Right, right, right. Plus, so they may, I don't know how it is in Puerto Rico, but they may have insurance on these things. So if they're. Yeah. So in know. other words, yeah. So in other words, what seems to be a lack of reports or a lack of incidents is actually a lack of reports unless you go looking for them. Mm. And I think okay. part of this is down to the internet. We, we, you know, the internet's changed our lives in a lot of positive ways, but also in lazy ways to where people think, well, if it's not on the internet, nothing's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and that's the case there. Now, the as far as the Texas and the U.S. Chupacabra is concerned, the the name Chupacabra was applied to these sort of hairless creatures predominantly serviced in Texas in the early 2000s. You know, they were called the Chupacabra because animals were being attacked, farm animals again, in a fashion very similar to what was being reported on Puerto Rico. And on top of that, people were seeing this weird animal that was doing the attacks. And it, before people realized what it was, it looked like a gigantic Rat, you know, that's the best way to describe right, it. Like right, right. Yeah, I'm thinking rat. about those, you know, those yeah. newscasts where they have a yeah. dead one and they always do look like a like a gross-looking... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, when the, the big difference between the Puerto Rican creature and the 
um, the Texas one or the American one, because they're now spreading, is the fact that, um, you know, the, the physical differences, you know, a bipedal creature versus one that works on, walks on four legs. Um, and the other big difference is, you know, we don't have a corpse of the Puerto Rican animal. We do have corpses of these Texas ones. And DNA analysis has been done on them, which is confirmed with 100% certainty that, you know, for the most part, they're coyotes. Uh, some of them, they're coyotes mixed with dog, uh, regular dog DNA, mm. sometimes um, American wolves, sometimes Mexican wolves. But, um, you know, they're completely hairless. And the skeptics have said, well, they're just hairless coyotes, but they're actually not. And even though they're not the same thing as the Puerto Rican um, chupacabra, there are some weird aspects to the mystery, and I'll explain what they are. Now, mange is a condition caused by a mite where it causes sporadic hair loss, and the animals, you know, they're irritated, they're itching all the time, they're scratching, and they scratch and bite so deeply that infection often sets in and they get sick, and they, they just don't look well. Mm. But the hair is usually for the most part, in tufts, you know, a tuft here, then there's a space, another tuft. Right. With these animals, they're like literally developing 100% hairlessly. In some cases, they've got like a very, very short, almost like a, you know, a guy's stubble when you haven't shaved for a few days. Right, right. You know, just, when you've got a lazy week or whatever, you know, we all have those. <laughs> and, um, but they're kind of like that. But it's uniform across the body. It's not like manges. And with, they don't have these scratch marks, so they're clearly not irritated now on top of that they have um noticeable overbites you know the top jaw is often um you know they're not uniform it's like an inch or so longer their front limbs are developing at a um like a lower length uh, or shorter length than the back limbs so they have this weird kangaroo like hopping movement yeah and um they're also developing these uh, weird pouches on their hindquarters, which no one can explain what? what they are. That's weird. And yeah, if you look at pic, you know, if you Google Texas Chupacabra pouch, you'll see these weird pictures. And um, the the prevailing theory is that there's some sort of spontaneous mutation in the species has gone on in the last 10 to 15 years. Because if it was just mange, why didn't we see these exact animals in? the 1990s or the 80s or as long as people have been seeing coyotes they haven't this distinct change in all these different characteristics has only begun since about 2004 and a friend of mine ken gerhard who's probably done more well not probably has done more research into the texas chupacabra than anybody else uh, <clears throat> ken believes it could be due to what are called mutagens now probably the most well-known mutagen is mercury which you know if mercury gets into the body of a pregnant woman or a pregnant animal, it can cause massive and very bizarre changes in the DNA of animals. Hmm. You know, animals can be born with, like, extra eyes and fingers and all sorts of weird things. And very weirdly, sometimes they actually work. You know, it's not like they're like a vestigial one that a doctor can cut off, you know, when uh, somebody's born with an extra finger, which occasionally happens, you know. Um, but these, you know, mutagens can actually affect an animal in a way where... I won't say they benefit from it, but it doesn't, you know, affect them adversely that, that some, there's a difference. Right. And so that is, for me and for Ken, the likelihood that we're dealing with regular coyotes, coyotes that have been mutated by mutagens. Now, they're clearly not 
the Texas uh, Chupacabra is clearly not the Puerto Rican Chupacabra. Right, right. And I'm in two minds as to whether or not they should even be called Chupacabra, as you know. No, uh, they shouldn't. We should come up with they're not really. Yeah. yeah, but the problem is the name is kind of stuck. Yeah. Um, now, they have this sort of grayish, bluish skin, and um, somebody suggested we should call them the Blue Dogs, which is actually not a bad name. And some people do call it that. But, um, yeah, I think the problem is that the term Chupacabra has become so kind of iconic that it really has stuck, and it's been something that's sort of promoted, you know, South Texas. We've got right. the Chupacabra here. But um, So we have one unknown animal, in my view, in Puerto Rico, and we have not an unknown animal, but an animal that's being mutated under bizarre and weird circumstances that's become known as the Chupacabra. Mm. And so the book basically is a case of me you know, running around Puerto Rico, running around Texas and Mexico, trying to make sense of all the different types of Chupacabra, trying to figure <laughs> out which is really the Chupacabra. And, and again, looking at all the different scenarios, and it's sort of like, a, like any road trip story. It's like a warts and all, as they say, you know... Um, Running into uh, issues with uh, this actually happened like in, with uh, with gangs in Puerto Rico, you know, muggers and that kind of thing. Oh no! And, uh, yeah, and um, you know, hanging out with sort of shadowy whistleblowers and getting wasted in some dingy bar in downtown Old San Juan and whatever, you know. So uh, nice. And then also, of course, looking for the chupacabra. It's um, so it's sort of pretty much. You know how a real life expedition goes on when you're out in the field. Nice, nice. So, so, so even though it, it popped, let's say, even though there was a there was a pop in in uh, uh, an uptick when it first burst on the scene, there's still there's still sort of things happening down there in Puerto Rico with regards to the the, the creature that is the chupacabra, not the blue dog thing. Yeah, but yeah, but as I said, the, the most important thing is you know that. With the Chupacabra or Bigfoot, we're never going to find these things on the Internet. You can find a lot of information on the Internet, but Bigfoot's not going to pop out of the screen of your laptop, you know, or your right. iPad, unless it's really paranormal, you know. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> but I've yet to hear that happening. But, uh, I mean, joking aside, yeah, you've really, there's still no excuse when you're looking for unknown animals living in forests, you know, rainforests, jungles, lakes than going looking for them. That's the only way we can get the answers. And um, and even I was kind of surprised at the sheer number of reports I still get every time I go there um, when everybody's telling me, well, you know, that was something that kicked off in the 90s and then it suddenly went away. And I was like, well, no, it actually didn't go away. What went away was the, I guess, the ability and the coverage that the phenomenon received. And the less coverage it got, the less that people looked into it. And the less that people looked into it, the less it got reported. And it was like a catch-22, you know. One thing makes the, the next thing worse, and then that one makes the other thing worse. And, you know, you, you have a lack of stories. And, um, and people assume it went away, not realizing, like I said, it's very often the circumstances of the people who live there that dictate whether or not they're going to be bothered to even tell people or not. Mm, exactly, yeah, yeah. You got anything that we missed? No, you got something? We had no mention today of the royal engagement. Good. Between Prince William. Good. What do you mean, Kate Middleton? Don't we wish them well? Do you know that Reality has a All chance right. to be invited to that wedding because he has vacationed with the Middleton family? Are you serious? Did you know that? No, I didn't yes. know that. Yes. 
You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Vacation Tonight, near Kevin. the Middleton family. You know them, don't you? <laughs> Knew of them. You know Pippa, the sister? Yes. Well, like I said, too, uh, some dude, he he may, I don't know how, I presume it may work the same way, but some guy might have all his, his livestock uh, insured and then something happens and it's like, do you want to go say it was a chupacabra and maybe lose out on getting the money for the thing or just say that they they died, you know what I'm saying? Well, that's actually, that's a good um, thing to talk about because the second time I went there to Puerto Rico was in 2005 with uh, Paul Kimball's Red Star Films. And um, this was actually to make a show for Canada's Space Channel, which is kind of like their equivalent of the, the sci-fi channel over mm-hmm. here. And um, But what happened was that the, product, the uh, channel decided in the end not to use the Chupacabra footage. They wanted to just focus on the cattle mutilation angle rather than animal mutilations in general, you know, which, and the Chupacabra clearly falls into the, the second category, not the, the cattle mutilation angle. Um, so Paul kind of put together his own little film uh, called um, Island of Blood. And, um, you know, it's an interesting little road trip type film again. But um, when we went with Paul... Um, I mean, we're, again, we were looking at all various different angles, you know, on this. But, we, you know, we, we sort of dug into a lot of different areas, again, that weren't sort of, weren't sort of really anticipated, you know. And, uh, and when you're talking about witnesses and, and finding witnesses and then ranchers who've got to make claims, this actually ties in with one guy we interviewed when I was over there with Port. And we had... Um, uh, like every time I've been there, you know, we've had a, a guide and a translator uh, to sort of help us through the interviews. Right. And on this uh, particular occasion, we had a guy with us, and he introduced us to a former, or retired actually, member of the Puerto Rican Civil Defense Department. And he met us with this huge file, probably about two inches thick, of all the reports that he collected on the Chupacabra when he was working in the Civil Defense Unit. And that was that part of it was for the very reason you mentioned, that people, you know, ranchers would have their animals attacked, they'd wake up finding significant amounts dead. And sometimes he would have to go out and take photographs, interview the rancher, you know, take pictures of the area, the animals, if any of them were left. And sometimes it was for things like insurance claims, and you know not, nothing conspiratorial. It was something that down to earth. Right. But there were other cases as well where the civil defence unit was actually collecting reports because they wanted to know what the hell was going on. You know, it had nothing to do with the rancher stories. It was partly collecting the stories for the insurance, but partly the more reports they got, the more they were trying to figure out what was going on and build a picture. Hmm. So in other words, you know, that actually did come into play when we went there with Paul. This, you know, he pulled all these polaroid color photographs that he'd taken you know just on on site at the time in the late 90s and mid 90s and uh he's like a fascinating dossier where there were drawings by some of the ranchers and the witnesses um you know you had pictures of the fields and the fences that had been sort of allegedly torn open by the creature you know pictures like that were all in there and uh you know, it was like, wow, I thought, you know, is he going to give this to me at the end of the interview? But, <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, I wouldn't be that lucky. So, <laughs> Did he, now, now, clearly he's looked at a considerable amount of uh, information on all this. Did he express an opinion on what he thought it was? Yeah. Well, 
he didn't actually express an opinion on what it was. He expressed an opinion on what it wasn't. Hmm. Now, one of the big theories is that there's no doubt if you go around Puerto Rico, and particularly Old San Juan, you know, the city itself, you have Old San Juan and New San Juan. And both of them are really cool. I mean, I could actually quite happily live on Puerto Rico. I think it's a great place. Um, but Old San Juan looks like something straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean. I mean, it look, you know, the old buildings and um, the old fortresses, you know, when they were literally the galleons were coming in and they were fighting with cannons on the ships. It actually hasn't changed that much. You know, you can't imagine almost like Jack Sparrow jumping off the ship, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but what I was going to say is in those areas, you do have a lot of packs of wild dogs roaming around. You can see them everywhere. Hmm. And um, so one of the prevailing theories is that a lot of these attacks are due to dog packs. Now, this civil defense guy we spoke to said he looked into many of these cases, and for the most part, where, <clears throat> excuse me, where it's perceived as being a big dog or pack of dogs, turned out not to be after all. You know, they, didn't, they found the animals dead, but they didn't find evidence of paw prints that could be associated with dogs. Yeah. Um, you know, the bite marks look different, things like that. So in other words, he said that although that theory existed, on reflection, when he looked at the reports that he collected, that the dog factor was probably, you know, 3 4% of the, of the reports. And um, so I said, well, what do you think it was? And he was like, it's a chupacabra, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, I said, and he was basically saying he didn't know what it was, but he knew what it wasn't. Interesting. Okay. All right, yeah. Well, it's good to know. I don't know if it's good to know or not, actually, but it's good to know for me that the Chupacabra is still, uh, still running wild down yeah, there. Yeah, and of course, Rico. you know, the, the big problem, uh, and it's even a problem for me, is that, like I said, anything that is sort of weird and hairless and strange, you know, becomes known as the Chupacabra. Um, you know, I've had so many people show me photographs of of something like a raccoon, which clearly has got mange. You know, and if you see a a raccoon with mange, I mean, it looks really weird. Um, I don't know if you're in front of your computer, but if you Google um, hairless bear, hairless grizzly bear, and you look at it, there's some famous photos from one particular zoo. I'm not kidding. It looks like a fully grown werewolf. I mean, I'm not joking. It looks just like a werewolf. Um, it's got like this, almost like an evil face as well. Um, you know, people swear it's like doctored photographs, but they're not. Um, hairless bears are like hairless. hairless grizzly bears are like some of the most creepiest looking oh my god creatures are you looking at one i'm right looking now? at one right now dude Folks, yeah, it looks like Google something this. out of looks like something out of underworld or american uh, werewolf in london it, it looks like it looks like someone took like a dog's head and stuck it on like a baby elephant <laughs> yeah i can't yeah exactly it sort of almost looks the face almost looks like demonic or something oh, yeah you know that I mean? is horrifying yeah but that but that just demonstrates you know how odd an animal can look when it doesn't appear as it normally does. And, and this gets back to the point I was making that, you know, I get so many reports now where somebody said, I've caught a chupacabra. Send me a photograph. They send me a photograph. Sorry, you know, it's a hairless possum. No, it's not. It's a hairless, it's a chupacabra. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a hairless possum. And I said, okay, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to go to the local news and tell them. Oh, and I God. never hear anything again because I know what's happened. They've clearly got in an animal expert, and they've said, yeah, it's a hairless possum, you know, and um, and it's not it's not the person's fault. I mean, you know, if you didn't know what a hairless bear or a hairless possum looked like, you would think you'd seen something weird, and that's that's one of the problems that the the phenomenon has become so popular that 
what began as something that was fairly easy to investigate suddenly becomes something that's far more difficult to investigate because there's multiple phenomena and multiple chupacabras mm. out there, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, all this stuff gets more and more mixed up, and that's the that's the trouble of it all. Um, well, let me make sure. It I is make... the trouble. What's that? I said it is a problem, but it's also, you know, interesting and intriguing to understand how one animal can be, you know, pretty solidly, you know, we can say it's the chupacabra and something else, which clearly isn't the, ca- the chupacabra, but can be, you know, given the same name and it sticks. You know, it's sort of fascinating how we do that, you know, that a name sticks and uh, and when it sticks, it doesn't go away, despite the fact that people realize it's not the, the original chupacabra, but, you know, they're still happy and content to, to use the names. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and we we never really sort of confronted that issue on the show before, but it's like we do we do need a new a name for this other creature from from yeah. Texas at this phenomenon. Well, as I said, some people Crazy do call them the blue dogs, or blue you, dogs. Know, you could call the blue gray dogs. Um, but but I don't think you know people are going to get away from calling them yeah, it won't the chupacabra you know, because I mean if you go down to like Austin and San Antonio as I do quite often. You know, there's like bars and, you know, the bars there, they'll sell like Chupacabra beer or a Chupacabra shot, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, you're not going to um, mess up their, their, their deal. No, yeah. and <laughs> yeah, you can you can buy T-shirts uh, all over the place and mugs and bumper stickers. And, you know, I shot or I saw the Texas Chupacabra and um, it's become an industry, but it's it's become an industry on Puerto Rico. You know, you can go in, hmm. in the El Yonke rainforest and, um, you know, you can go sort of a couple of hundred feet up and find little stores at the side of the road where they're selling Chupacabra T-shirts and little like, plasticine models and things like that. So. That's crazy. That's the that's the <laughs> in, ingenuity of the human spirit there. Yeah. Um, now, I want to make sure we cover all the books that, that you got out right now. Bloodline of the Gods. Now, tell me about yeah. this because uh, I read the blurb on it. I confess, uh, Nick, I don't have time to keep up with all your stuff. You're so prolific that it's like... Uh, yeah, I, well, I, I don't actually half the time. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, 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 from the, from what I can gather on Bloodline of the Gods, is that you're you're arguing or you're suggesting or you're putting out there, you're you're mm-hmm. mulling over, let's say, the idea that yeah, uh, that's more that, like it. Yeah, there's one there's one sort of uh, blood type that's particularly unique, and you think, yeah, and, and, you, and I guess what you're saying is, hey, maybe we should take a look at the uniqueness of this unique blood type because uh, anything that's unique might, is deserves further inspection. Yeah, I mean, that's basically what it is, you know. I mean, it deals with the whole ancient astronaut scenario, which isn't something I write about very often at all. Mm. I mean, of all the, I've done about, about 32, 33 books, something like that. And of those 33, Bloodline of the Gods and, and the Pyramids of the Pentagon are, are the only two books I've ever done on, like, ancient, you know, uh, biblical, religious, yeah. archaeological mysteries. So it's not something I, I, you know, I do much on. But... This sort of this area kind of fascinates me. The fact that um, a very small percentage of the human population is what's called Rh negative. Um, you know, the vast majority of the population, sort of, depending on whose statistics you look at, sort of 85 to about 92 percent of the population um, has Rh positive blood. Now, the Rh um, basically comes from the rhesus factor, and the rhesus factor relates to the the rhesus monkey, or its official title, the rhesus macaque, with which we're at 92% identical. 
And so the big question is, if the human race, you know, was the product of nothing stranger than straightforward evolution, why is it that a small percentage of the human population lacks this RH factor that the rest of the population has? You know, we're all homo sapiens. It's not like some of us are Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon, you know, different types of human. I don't mean like different races but different types of human. You know, we're all homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. And um, so in that sense, why should some of us be different? Now, what's interesting is that, and I found this even more sort of shockingly since the book's come out, with the sheer, literally hundreds of people who've contacted me who are RH negative and have had sort of profound UFO incidents. And that's, that's why I wrote the book, because... A lot of people are RH negative, and bear in mind it's a small percentage of the population to start with, but a significant number of that small percentage have had abduction experiences, contactee encounters, feel drawn to the UFO subject. Mm. I mean, given the fact that this ties in with the ancient astronaut scenario of sort of manipulation of an early human, <clears throat> primitive type of human in the distant past, it's interesting that a number of ancient astronaut um, researchers and writers were RH negative and, and still are in some cases. Eric von Daniken, arguably the most famous writer on the whole ancient aliens angle. Uh, Brad Steiger, who's written extensively on Atlantis and ancient mysteries. The late Zachariah Sitchin, you know, who sort of nailed, um, you know, like stuff like the Anunnaki. Those folks are all RH negative? Yes. Yeah, wow. and also uh, Robert Anton Wilson, um, wow. who was heavily interested in um, the Egyptian ties to ancient alien stories. He was RH negative. So, you know, the, we find people drawn to the subject, abductees, contactees. And so I, I address things in the book like theories of inherited memory. You know, is there something encoded in the DNA of RH negatives that in hmm. the distant past, they so, in their subconscious, they know... Not not necessarily openly and graphically, but subconsciously, they're aware there's something else going on with them that you know makes them kind of unique with this blood group. That's really weird. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to make. Yeah, that's that's really compelling stuff. I got to find out what my blood type is now. <laughs> well, people keep asking me, and I've got to find out as well. I really should have done that before I wrote the book. So I <laughs> yeah, jeez. You know, I could tell people exactly what I am or what I'm not. But, um, yeah, so the book basically looks into the theories that have been put forward by people like Zachariah Sitchin, you know, the idea of, in the distant past, an early type of human, possibly Cro-Magnon, being genetically manipulated. Hmm. Um, and what's interesting is that, although I mentioned that, you know, the vast majority of people are RH positive, like around about 8, 9, 10, 11% uh, are RH negative, but for the Basque people of Spain and portions of France, that's B-A-S-Q-U-E, yeah. their figures are like between 45 and 60%. Now, what's interesting is that the area of um, France and Spain where the Basque people live today is where the Cro-Magnon men, or Cro-Magnon people, sorry, lived uh, 35, 40,000 years ago. Hmm. And we know that other areas where the Cro-Magnons lived, they uh, today also have higher levels than normal of um, RH negatives. So this has given rise to a, the probably correct theory that the Cro-Magnons were RH negative and that the people, you know, their descendants today, you know, absorbed into Homo sapien, 
that that's why there are heavy concentrations of RH negatives where the Cro-Magnons used to live. Yeah. And so for that reason, that begs the question, well, if the Cro-Magnons were manipulated, why was it? And, you know, this comes back to a lot of the theories that have been put forward about creating like a slave race and things like that. Right, right. And, ancient uh, ancient astronauts, past, I think. Yeah. Ancient astronauts that were sort of perceived as gods. And, you know, I mean, they're pretty much in, you know, most ancient religious texts, you can find stories of the so-called gods coming down and upgrading the species and helping them and in- introducing new technologies. I mean, classic example from like Middle America, Central America, like Quetzalcoatl, you know, the story of this this strange entity that suddenly appeared and, um, you know, introduces farming and things like that. And, um, and of course, in many texts, you know, you hear stories like the Nephilim and the men of renown and the gods coming down and taking human wives and, and Eve being born out of Adam's rib, you know, and mm-hmm. um, things like this, which you can place into sort of like, you know, a genetic manipulation category. And, and then the book sort of... Um, Continue. There's actually only about 30 to 40 pages of the book are in relation to the ancient astronauts' angle. The rest then focuses on abductions and things like mm. these controversial stories of hybrid babies, hybrid children, the black-eyed children, the sort of extensive chapters on all that. And I interviewed a lot of people for the book who were RH negative and had, had profound UFO experiences and also ties, you know, with these stories of seeing hybrid babies growing in tanks and all sorts of weird stuff. And um, and again, it's sort of fascinating, almost like a subculture that a lot of people don't realize even exists. You know, the this whole RH negative angle of the abductees has very much sort of gone under the radar for many, many years. Yeah, I never even, I think, I think, I think, I think some of that came out in the Project Core uh survey that they did that the that there was a preponderance of rh negative in there and the experiencers yeah uh, that, that, that's true and i mean you know the and again the big question is why and and i you know i think it could well be there's something encoded i mean one of the really fascinating ones is that um you know there's some physical differences as well um every year a small number of people are born with an extra vertebra in their back hmm. and unless you had spinal surgery and even if the doctor bothered to tell you, you know, you wouldn't know you've got a, an extra vertebra. It's not like, for the most part, it causes problems. You know, it develops, the, the body develops in a way that copes with it. Yeah, you don't get a hunchback. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, now, what's interesting, keep in mind this issue of the extra vertebra, is that if we think back to the arguably the most famous abduction story of all, the Betty and Barney Hill case, 1961, you know, the Hills were coming back from vacation in uh, Canada driving back home to New Hampshire, saw this weird light in the sky late at night and seemed to get closer. Then it seemed not to be a star after all, but some sort of vehicle. And they reported seeing what looked like entities inside looking down at them. Then there was like a period of missing time, bad dreams, nightmares. So they decided to get regressive hypnosis to see what happened. And when Betty and Barney were undergoing hypnosis, Barney said on one occasion that the aliens, or whatever they were, kept running their fingers up and down his spine, and he felt with hindsight that they were counting his vertebra. Now, this, you know, this was 1962-63 when the hypnosis was going on, because John Fuller's book on the subject came out in 66. So, 
you know, no one was talking about Rh negative blood and abductees with extra vertebrae in 1962, and yet that's exactly what Barney Hill was saying. He's like, well, it was like they were counting how many vertebrae I'd got. You know, were they trying to figure out if he was Rh negative without actually sort of doing intrusive operations or whatever? Weird. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Is there any, I presume some kind of scientists have looked at this sort of thing. Aside from the extra vertebrae, is there any difference in between the blood? Like, is, is there any difference between the two types of blood? I know that has something to do with, like, what can be taken in by other people with donation, like donors and that yeah. kind of thing. Well, but, I mean, there's no, well, like, the is there, like, any sort of chemical difference or, or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, there actually is, yeah. The, the difference between people who are RH positive and RH negative, they're, they're, they're called the negatives because they lack a particular protein that um, deals with combating certain viruses. Hmm. Now, what's weird is that, you know, there are, in some cases, the RH negatives, this is a controversial study, but some studies suggest that the RH negatives are actually more resistant against certain viruses, huh. but they lack the protein that the rest of us have to combat certain viruses. And um, it's basically what's, what's called an antigen that's missing from their blood. And that's what the RH factor is. It's an antigen, a protein on blood cells that helps combat certain viruses and uh, bacteria. And so they don't have it. But in many respects, as I said, they, they're quite more resistant um, than the rest of us. Now, there are a couple of differences. The most serious one relates to the issue of pregnancy. Now, if let's say you've got a man who's RH negative and a woman who's RH positive and she gets pregnant, well, a lot of people don't realize that when a woman gets pregnant, the, the mother's blood and the baby's or the fetuses, the growing fetuses' blood, don't actually mix. You know, the, the mother's body certainly feeds and nourishes the fetus as it grows. But the two, the bloodstreams don't mix. Now, so it can come like different types of blood and everything, yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, if, say, for example, you know, a baby or the fetus, maybe there's sometimes a concern, and there's this procedure which is called am amniocentesis, where in simple terms, it's like a little needle's inserted, and blood cells can be extracted just to check that the baby's developing fine. Mm -hmm. Now, if in that procedure, some of those blood cells, you know, leak, and get into the mother's bloodstream, that can cause major problems because, as bizarre as it sounds, the mother's immune system views that the RH negative blood that is now in her positive blood or vice versa as, no pun intended, as literally alien. Right, right, yeah, as, right. You know, right. something that shouldn't be there. And the mother's body... Uh, immune system actually tries to kill the unborn fetus okay. and when I say kill it I mean literally tries to kill it mm. now fortunately today there are medicines that easily combat this very easily but it's a matter of that's why you know blood groups are always checked when a, a woman becomes pregnant to make sure this issue doesn't happen and if it looks like it could you know the steps are taken and um, the, the right drugs are used and, and everything's good but it's when you know perhaps it hasn't been noticed the, the, the least worst um, symptom is severe anemia. You know, anemia in an adult can be dangerous, but yeah. in a, as a fetus is growing, it can cause irreversible problems. I mean, you see, like, teenage girls with bulimia or something who've got anemia because they're throwing up everything they're eating. They're not yeah. getting any nourishment. But, you know, if they pull themselves back from the brink, they'll recover. 
a baby that's that's sort of you know has this rh negative slash rh positive situation then you know if the damage occurs before they're even born they're not always going to recover and in a worst case scenario it can lead to death so Jeez. you know you have this bizarre situation of when the two blood groups cross that the mother tries to kill the baby you know that, which is almost unique you know? mm. Yeah, it's bizarre. Well, I mean, it's unique in a bad way, obviously. Yeah, it's not bizarre in a sense that it makes perfect sense, sort of like on a medical level, but it's like bizarre just on a, I don't even know, on a psychological level, I guess. Well, we're nearing the end here. I wanted you to tell this story because I saw it on one of your Mysterious Universe articles. Uh, It has nothing to do with these new books. Uh, It's it's about the alien big cat story and Princess Diana. I thought that one was just crazy, crazy, crazy story. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a weird story. Um, the It's sort of filled with sort of cryptozoological aspects and also you know, conspiracy aspects. And um, in Britain, every year, we have a lot of reports of what have become known as ABCs or alien big cats, hmm. you know, where people see these large black cats, you know, the size, something like a black leopard is how they look, you know, and black leopards are big cats, you know. Um, and, of course, it doesn't really need saying, but, I mean, the U.K. isn't home to anything like a black leopard, you know. Um, the biggest sort of wild animals we've got are wild boar, foxes, you know, deer, uh, things like that. Certainly nothing as exotic as savage big cats running around. But every year people report they run into big mystery as to where they're all coming from or where they came from. Now... A lot of the reports come from the uh, southwest of England, two counties in particular, one called Cornwall and another one called Devon. And um, this all ties in with a story concerning Princess Diana. Now, we all know today that um, Princess Diana, when she was married to Prince Charles, you know, the marriage wasn't um, going well. And she had a couple of affairs, you know, with different guys over the years. One of these was a guy who was actually uh, formerly... um, in the in the British military, and um, this went on for a while, and it coincided when with the same time frame when British intelligence got rumours that terrorists were either going to try and assassinate or kidnap Princess Diana, and so they had like the British equivalent um, of you know like the Navy SEAL something like that following her around. Right. In England, it's called the SAS. It's called the Special Air Service, and you know they're the guys who know how to killing 45 different ways, you know, in two seconds or whatever, and, you know, creep undercover and dressed in black and wipe out an entire unit. They're they're like, just like the SEALs, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they had a unit um, essentially following Diana whenever she would go out of town and, you know, she wouldn't know. And that actually included um, when, you know, she was going to meet this particular guy. And... um, what happened was that this was in a little tiny village in this aforementioned county of Devon where you know there happened to be a lot of big cat sightings and reportedly because of these threats on Diana you know the guys were armed they had night vision equipment and this was in a um, a little village called Bratton Clavelli. You know, it looks like the sort of village, it still looks like the sort of village you would see in some old English murder mystery, you know, where they're trying to figure out if it was the vicar or the owner of the local pub or the old lady down the road who did the murder, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. And um, as this was like two or three in the morning, and they, one of the guys, you know, they had their sights on the house where she was visiting, um, 
just in the you know worst case scenario that terrorists might be prowling around. One of the guys actually saw through his night vision equipment this huge black cat prowling around. And, and bear in mind, you know, we're not talking about a built-up area. You know, people say, well, how on earth could they hide in the cities? You imagine if you've seen, like, any of the televised or the movie versions of The Hound of the Baskervilles, you know, um, with these rolling moors and foggy moors right, and marshes right. and hills and stone circles. Much of England still looks like that. And that's what Dartmoor and that area where this occurred still looks like the villages haven't changed for hundreds of years and everywhere looks the same and um as i said one of the guys saw this big cat in his night vision equipment and they were like oh shit you know what do we do now that was totally unforeseen the the big question was well do we shoot it and risk you know waking up all the people in this little sleepy (laughs) village of about 150 people or not now, they thought about shooting it, and granted, they had, um, you know, uh, silencers. But on the other hand, in a little village like that, if they injured it and it starts screaming and, you know, oh God, yeah. roaring, it's going to wake up everybody. Now, that in itself might not have been a problem, but then if the media found out and the village found out, you know, what are all these military people doing here at 2 in the morning with night scopes, what it would have done potentially would have exposed the fact that Princess... Um, Diana was having an affair with this guy, Major James Hewitt, that was right. his name. And, um, and so if the, if the press, you know, the UK press is like notorious for, you know. Oh, yeah, they love that. They love yeah. scandals, you know. What it could have done, I mean, it could have brought down the monarchy if it had been proved that Diana was seeing, you know, Major Hewitt. And so they elected to do nothing. You know, the, the alternative is, well, if we shoot it, People come running out. Someone's going to call the press. Before we know it, there's going to be this situation where everybody's running around. The whole thing's going to come tumbling out. Front page news, you know, army watches Diana as she has a fair, that kind of thing. Right. And apparently the cat just ambled off onto the moors, you know, like the Hound of the Baskervilles and vanished. And um, and the story was actually given to a friend of mine, John Downs, mm-hmm. um, who looked into this very, very deeply. And what's interesting is that John received the story and privately shared it with a few friends like me and a few others, actually before Diana herself went public in the 1990s to admit that, you know, she'd been seeing this guy, um, um, Hewitt. you know, the major, Hewitt. Yeah. And um, so in that sense, whoever John Source was, because it was like a whistleblower, um, we still don't know who he was today, but he clearly had inside information because nobody, not even the media, you know, was talking about the Hewitt connection when mm. all this first surfaced. So, you know, it's one of those really weird, stranger than fact, you know, fa- uh, fiction stranger than fact scenarios where, you know, you'd, something happens that you would imagine could never happen, you know, sort of the military, and then you've got a conspiracy with Diana, and then of all things, a black cat pops onto the equation. You right, know, exactly, and, um, yeah. But it was like, a, but things like that do happen now and again. You know, it's just a weird, a weird story that that pops up, and you got to do your best to try and figure it all out. So. Yeah, no, I like I like it a lot because it's like like you said, it crosses over a bunch of different sort of lines there of uh, yeah. what the hell is going on here, you know. But it makes perfect sense that they would they would be caught in this catch twenty two of what to do yeah, about it. Yeah. So. It's yeah. pretty, pretty, uh, pretty interesting story. Mm. Now we got the uh, you get the four books that just came out now. So when for the, for the avid collector, what can they look forward to next? What's what's uh, what's on the horizon for you? Um, well, I've got a couple of books um, 
There won't be any more this year, uh, at least as far as I know. Well, no, there won't be. I can tell. I can assure people of that. <laughs> but uh, I'm actually on the. You know, we we're talking earlier about the Man in Black and the Black Eyed Children, and um, the uh, one book I've got coming out probably very early next year is called Women in Black, mm-hmm. um, which looks into the the far less well known issue of, as I mentioned earlier, Women in Black. And as I also said, you know, they're, they're not as exciting as the name suggests, but. Uh, <laughs> um, but the you know the the reports are fascinating and they kind of eerily parallel the women the men in black and so I felt why not get this out to people because it's something that most people even in ufology have no knowledge of it's it's sort of like the black eyed children in the sense it's a phenomenon that has been around for a while but it's only when people started talking about it other people then said hey you know I had an experience with that 20 or 30 years ago but didn't know what to call them yeah and that's I found that with the women in black that Sometimes, you know, somebody has had a, a profound UFO experience and they've had a knock at the door a few days later, like I mentioned to you earlier, where a woman poses as a census taker, asks weird questions and then leaves. But the person doesn't associate it with a phenomenon called the women in black until you ask them, you know, did anything strange happen around the time of the experience? And they say, oh, yeah, this strange woman came to the house. And then I tell them, well, you know, I've got dozens of cases like that. <laughs> then they realize their little, largely forgotten experience is a part of this bigger matter of the women in black. So that one will be out early next year. And I'm also doing a book on the Loch Ness Monster, but which looks at it the, in the same way that Stan Gordon looked at the paranormal aspects of Bigfoot in mm. Silent Invasion. Mine looks at all the weirder, supernatural things surrounding the Loch Ness Monster. Um where people have said they've seen it shapeshift and there are ghostly encounters at Loch Ness and um, UFOs over the loch, even a few uh, Men in Black reports. And the where in the distant past, for example, there have been sort of magical and supernatural rites and sacrifices um, at the loch in the very same areas of the water where these creatures suddenly appear. So the the book is sort of going to be a controversial one but it, it looks at the idea that the Loch Ness monsters could be some sort of paranormal manifestation nice I like that that sounds yeah, interesting so. I always try and you know you, I, if a I'm going to do a book on the Loch Ness, Loch Ness monster Ness, yeah. yeah I mean when the publisher said to me would you be interested in doing one I said well I would I said but I'll only do it if you let me do the book that I want to do not not just an overview of Nessie, which has been done to death. I couldn't tell you how many times, you oh, know. Yeah, yeah. There's no, just no point doing that. But if you can give the reader some a totally new angle, you know, which you know, I'm always mindful of, because if people are going to buy your books, you want to be able to give them value for money. You don't want them just to think, well, this is just a mirror image of the last not Loch Ness book that came out, um, you know, five years ago or whatever. Mm. So... Um, in that sense, you know, I think people, whether they agree with us or not, or not, I think they'll find it interesting that there are a lot of <clears throat> leads and ties that, that push the Nessie story down, almost like a Mothman path, you know, where it seems like an animal, but there's so many weird aspects to it as well. Mm. Now, before I let you go, uh, we may lose the live audience in like five minutes. If I hold you over for like ten, you'll be okay, right? Oh, yeah. All right, cool. Now, one of the books that you wrote that, like, always resonated with me for, like, forever and ever was Final Events. Have you had any sort of update, any news, any sort of any new insights into the whole, uh, the the Final Events sort of mythos uh, that that that, that uh, you put out in that book? 
Yeah, well, I actually have. Um, there's a few things where, you know, some people said things like, oh, when I was in the military, you know, I remembered that people, there were groups of people that were sort of looking into this idea that the UFO phenomenon was literally demonic. You know, and for people who haven't read Final Events, I always have to let them know that, <clears throat> like a lot of my books, Final Events tells the story of a group. Um, or I should say that the way I tell the story, you know, is of this group in the government slash military slash intelligence community that looked into the UFO subject. Um, we're really not sure how far back, but certainly to a degree it existed in the 50s, 60s, and certainly a lot more so in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I'm not sure to what extent it's still around. Hmm. But basically they studied the UFO phenomenon, came to believe that it was essentially a literally de a demonic deception. And when I say, you know, demonic deception, I mean, from their perspective, sort of hell, fork tails, horns, you know, the right, whole thing. Right. And um, now I point out that I wrote the book because I thought it was fascinating that a group, a think tank type group in government, not an agency, but like a think tank put together, should have been funded to look into this and actually influence quite a lot of influential people. So that's why I wrote the book, not to promote the theory as, no pun intended, the gospel truth, you know, <laughs> but, um, but to demonstrate that governments sometimes investigate weird stuff, and here's what they investigated yeah. and how and why they came to their conclusions. But in saying that, I have had a number of people come forward who've said that, you know, I remember when we were in the military and we had a UFO encounter and we were asked all sorts of weird questions about life after death and when we saw the UFO, did we feel that our souls were being probed or anything like that? Like, really weird questions. Yeah, weird. And it sounds like the Collins Elite Group. You know, some of the people say, well, we were never told the name of the group, but it's clear from the sort of things that were going on that they were talking either about the Collins Elite or an extremely similar group. And, mm. and in the book, I actually talk about how there could have been, or there seemed to be a couple of groups working in tandem with each other in this issue. Um, but, you know, and I've got a few things like that, but certainly nothing where I could ever do, like, at least not yet, I could never do, like, a final events part two. I mean, I could certainly um, do something like a, you know, a 20-page update for, a, you know, somebody's compendium of, of works or whatever. I could do that, but, you know, certainly not enough for another book. But, mm. but in saying that, coincidentally... Um, my new Mysterious Universe article, which may actually go up tonight or if not um, in the early hours because they're based out of Australia, um, that actually deals with a very similar thing where reportedly there was um, a similar kind of um, study of the, um, the Middle Eastern jinn, you know, which is basically, you know, the very equivalent of of the demon, you know, there's, apart from the name, there's not that much difference, you know, neither are sort of entities that you want to cross paths with. But um, this new article is a two-part one that talks about the connections between the jinn, and, uh, which is where the, the term genie comes from. Right. But it, it's all about the connections between the jinn and the UFO phenomenon. That, so that's a two-part one on Mysterious Universe, which should uh, be online sometime tonight. So. Nice. Sounds good. All right. Well, we're going to lose the live audience in about 90 seconds, as the uh, British lady just said. So uh -oh. thanks for tuning in to the live show, folks. I can't believe how fast this one went by, Nick. This is unbelievable. Yeah, that's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I'm like stunned. I'm glad we got 
all the books in. Uh, let me see where my yeah. Well, thanks for doing that. Yeah. Oh no problem. Well, like I said, I was amazed, envious. Is really the best. <laughs> well, oh as God, I said, guy. it's not. There were some people, you know, that said thought they thought you know that all of them were written together. It's like how do you juggle writing four books? But right, as I right. said, some of them were like completed eight months ago, six months ago. And another one was published, excuse me, was finished like a couple of weeks ago. Hmm. And, you know, they could have spread them out. But, I mean, it doesn't bother me. I mean, because they're all so different. So it's not like any of them really are in competition with each other. And um, it's not like people are going to get confused and thinking, well, you know, there's two ancient astronaut books and two on Roswell or whatever. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. It's not, not like that. Yeah. Exactly. They are, of course, uh, Bloodline of the Gods. Chupacabra Road Trip, The Bigfoot Book, and Men in Black, right? That's that's the four, right? Yeah. Nice, yeah. nice. I'm telling you, I bet you, you should ask your publisher. I bet you there's some kind of like, I bet kids, I bet you have like an uptick in, in books when school starts for some reason. Well, maybe. Sure why, yeah. but, you know, yeah. They're probably like, this Redfern sells amazingly well in early September, so we need to get <laughs> these books out in September for when school starts. It but, could be. I'll have to check into that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that might be the case. But uh-huh. all right. Well, we've lost the live audience. Thanks to all of them who uh, who tuned in, and thank you, man, for coming on the show. I really do appreciate it. it seems like every yeah, time well, I, thanks I, for having I me on, uh, you, it's, it's, it's been last a, minute. When was when was I last on? In January, uh, February of 2014. So like almost a year, over a year and a half ago. I couldn't believe Holy it. Oh shit! I know. And I said long. to myself, no. I was like. Well, I made a promise that I would definitely get you on like uh, every season of uh-huh. the show. So I, I had to had to make sure that we got you back on. Mm-hmm. I saw you had all these books. I was like, this is crazy because there's so much mm-hmm. to cover here. And you know, sometimes we do one book and we just go the whole show. But I like this because we bounced around to all different types. Yeah, of and stuff. I think yeah, and I think sometimes you know when it's a two. I, I mean, I like doing the two-hour shows because you can get a lot done. But I think you know if you can cover a lot of areas, sometimes in a two-hour show, it's better than just one subject, you know mm, what I mean? Exactly. Particularly when it's a really sort of delineated subject rather than a lot of scope, you know what I mean? So. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, I'll, I'll ask you this before we get going here. We'll try not to spend too much time on it. But, uh, I was, oh, I don't I mind. For, no, I know. I'm just, <laughs> you'll know what I mean when I say it. Uh, huh. I was happy that, because uh, sometimes, you know, when I talk to you, when I talk to Greg, or I talk to Paul, it's like we spend a lot of time grousing about the state of UFO research. So we're, luckily mm-hmm. we didn't do too much of that tonight. But now that we've got a little bit of time to sort of kick back and, and, and grouse, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this year, man. This UFO, this Roswell Slides thing, it's just, mm-hmm. well, it's just it has it's been, been an embarrassing year for ufology. Let me put it that way. Yeah. That's probably my... Well, yeah, I mean, the the biggest disaster course, fiasco, is the Roswell slide, you know. I mean, I was sort of caught up in that for a while. Oh, yeah, you were. Yeah, you kind of did get. Yeah, but I mean, I I sort of looked at it from the perspective, well, this is interesting, and maybe it's this, and and I looked, you know, search for data that, just to see where it went, you know. Thankfully, Mm. I was never someone who said, you know, this is a slide of a body from the Roswell crash, period, you know, here's the proof. Um, But, yeah, that was the most disastrous thing I think that could have happened to ufology even worse than the alien autopsy film because at least with that one you know for the most part a lot of skip people were skeptical to start with you know it was um it had its supporters but I mean this one I mean you know it, it just sort of reached a massive pinnacle and you know they had the whole thing in Mexico going down and God knows how many people buying tickets and, you know, buying, right. paying to watch it live on, you know, on the laptop or whatever. And um, 
you know, there were people saying, well, this is it, we've got it. You know, we've, we've cracked Roswell, here's a photograph on the bodies. And it was this situation where just like 72 hours after the footage was shown in Mexico, the whole thing was over. You know, that's what pissed me off. It's like, well, if the so-called dream team that had got the access to, you know, copies of the images or whatever, they'd had them like two years, and they couldn't figure out what it showed. They earnestly believed it was an alien. And yet within 72 hours of being shown in Mexico, the placard on the the glass case that it's in has been deciphered and de-blurred and shown that it shows that it's a you know, two-year-old mummified boy. Mm. We could have, you know, we could have nipped all this in the bud immediately and even to the point where the story wouldn't have never needed to be told at all. You know, it could have just been one of those things, okay, it wasn't from the Roswell crash, let's keep it quiet because there's always going to be someone who says it was, you know. It could have actually just been locked down and, and nobody would none the wiser. But um, that's the thing that sort of pisses me off. You know, anybody can be taken in by a photograph and legitimately look at it and be puzzled by it, and it might turn out to be something that it wasn't. You know, that, that happens. Right. But on the other hand, why is it they couldn't de-blur, you know, the, the, uh, the image and see it for what it actually was when everybody else could just by using one specific program? Yeah. I, that, that, was, that in itself was one of the worst things because it just spoke, you know, reams about fucking um, ineptitude. Right, you right. Know, that's the only way I can term it, you know. Yeah. At at best, it's incompetence. At worst, it's fraud. Yeah, yeah. It's like there's well, really no positive spin on it. Yeah. Now, I mean, where I differ to some of, you know, my friends, you know, I actually don't think it was a fraudulent thing. I think a lot of it was just down to... A massively incompetent way of dealing with something that should have been thought out far better, far easier, and not go down this roller coaster of making statements and putting on a big event. Instead, just work quietly and say nothing until you're 100% sure it's this or you're 100% sure it's that. Mm. But don't ever, you know, sort of parade it as this or that when you don't really know. And that's what we found out, that nobody really did know. Right. Um, you know, and then... But well, then part, it's too of, late, you know. part of me thinks that it was a it was a combination of the two, maybe. It was incompetent people being taken advantage by fraudulent people, you know. Yeah, but, I mean, we knows? don't know. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, as much as I sort of knew some of the background, at least, you know, I'm not sure we'll ever know all of the ins and outs of every aspect of it. Yeah. In the same way, you know, the, the alien autopsy film, there are some, still some weird aspects to that that we don't have the answers to. Mm. A lot of people don't realize that. You know, they think it's just Ray Santilli. But, um, you know, you put pointed questions to, uh, to Santilli, like ask him, for example, you know, where did they get um, actual real 1940s uh, autopsy equipment, knives and things like that? You know, it's all made in London. Where did they get what is clearly has been proved to be an American clock on the wall? All they've got to do is show us a receipt from the old antique shop or whatever that they got it from. Yeah. You know, that would lay all these questions to rest. So that, you know, but it's things like that that do, for some people, keep the alien autopsy film open. Hmm. You know, because of the questions like that. You know, how did you get hold of an American scalpel, which is which is an American scalpel in the film? You know, it's not actually think about it. If you wanted to get a British scalpel tomorrow, 
you would leave a paper trail. You might have to order it online, you know what I mean? Back right. in the 90s, you'd probably have to order it from overseas and, you know, you'd be able to prove how you got it. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, sometimes keeps these issues open. And and it's the same with the with the Roswell slides, that um, I'm sure there's aspects to the story that we don't know and probably never will know. Um, but what they imply or where, you know, what path they would take the case down, I don't know, other than the fact that it's not an alien. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, the whole, yeah... You know, I've been, I think that's why I got so enamored with Eric uh, Wallet's stuff, just because it takes a whole different look at this from a different mm-hmm. perspective. Because I find it very frustrated that they've never, that we're still, we're still searching for answers to all this. And yeah. uh, well, I don't I know. I just the- feel like people don't, I don't know. People just don't care about UFOs anymore in the sense that, like, the main, I mean, mainstream, normal people, regular people, mm-hmm. main people who don't have an interest in this. Yeah, and I think, I think the biggest disaster for ufology wasn't necessarily the slides issue itself, but it's going to be, well, what happens if somebody else one day does come forward, you know, and they've got a photograph taken by their grandfather, maybe it was one of the on-site photographers photographing the bodies, managed to smuggle a picture out, and, you know, it's there's no negative that can be analyzed, there's just this photograph, you right, know. Right, People may actually say, oh, you know, there's no way I'm getting into that because we're going to get sucked into another Roswell Slides issue. Mm. So in that sense, I think this whole stupid affair has had a detrimental effect on Roswell, not just for now, but it might have the same effect if whistleblowers or the families of old timers come forward to say, hey, I've got something like that. And people may be like, oh, yeah, we've heard it all before. Yeah, you've got an old photograph found hidden behind, um, you know, took behind the wallpaper or something like that in the living room, you yeah. know, uh, been there for 50 years and he's now died and we want to release it. And, and I know that people are going to be as wary and and careful and maybe to the point where overly careful and when they've actually got something, ironically, that's the real thing, you know. Um, mm. But that's ufology. I mean, it, it's littered with shit, you know. <laughs> it really is. It really is. It's a very frustrating field to be fo- to follow. I don't consider myself a part of it. Well, find, you know, it's like, one of the reasons it's yeah. frustrating is because there really is a genuine phenomenon, mm. you know, and it gets bogged down by, unfortunately, that what it gets bogged down by are the mundane and the hoaxes and the misidentifications, which the press and the skeptics love to promote because it makes us look stupid. But that's the big irony. For all these hoaxes, frauds, misidentification, or whatever, you know, at the end of the day, there still is a real phenomenon, and we should never forget that. And I think we need to try and, hopefully, people will learn from something like the slides issue, you know, in various different ways, so it doesn't happen again. But it happened with the autopsy film, you know, it happened now. It, it probably will happen again. So. Yeah. I mean, the only good part about all this, the scene, I guess you could say right now, is it does seem to be a shift in a way of, of sort of more open-minded thinking. But where it goes, I have no idea. Well, how about this argument, though? I, I've, I've raised this before, and I think that you uh, – what I like about you is you tell it like it is. So I'll, I'll, I'll bring this up to you. Uh, I've sort of raised the issue with other people that it's like another big part of the UFO research community, let's say, is that the consumers, the ones who drive all of this, 
they seem like terribly misguided folks. No, no, I don't mean this in, you know, I don't, you can't help but make that sound like a put down. And I, I don't mean to like personally insult them or anything like that, but it's like, it's like, it's like you, it's like the old expression, like, uh, I don't know, you get what you pay for kind of thing. It's like they're, the, the support goes to sort of some of these more extreme things and it's like like you said if you if you want to get invited to the conferences and stuff you kind of have to go a certain route and everything it's like you have to appeal to the audience and the audience is is not of the mindset that like um, a, like an open minded sort of let's figure this out kind of mindset well you know to to a degree i would i would disagree with that um i'll tell you for why because i actually think the audience is very often are far more open than the speakers yeah i think sometimes the speakers Certain ones I know I won't name who primarily focus on the whole government angle and documents and freedom of information. Right. But they're the ones who feel they've got to stick to what their guns and say what they've always said because they know that that brings people in and they're going to get, you know, a decent fee at the end of the conference. Hmm. But in speaking to people, you know, in the bar afterwards or whatever, I often find that people when i talk about some of the weirder stuff they're like well that's really interesting you know if i talk about the bigfoot ufo connections now the rest of the ufo panel while i'm lecturing about the connections between bigfoot and ufos they might be cringing in the background saying, oh god you know nick's going off on his paranormal tangent <laughs> yeah yeah and they're the ones who are cringing but the audience very often are really interested because they haven't been exposed to it that much before in other words you know they've been sort of All right cocooned by the status quo um, aspect of ufology. Okay. You're giving me um, hope here, then. Yeah. No, I get, honestly, I'm not just saying that. I honestly get that a lot, where people really do say, wow, that, that was, I never thought about that, and uh, that was cool. You know, and they, sometimes, you know, they've said words to the effect of, that was actually better than just getting another overview of the latest FOIA material or the latest Roswell revelations, that kind of thing. Talking about something like, you know, how psychedelics can have an impact on opening doorways to mm. other realms where some of these things might come from. Um, what prompts, um, you know, um, people to look into the Bigfoot angle of, of UFOs and then so you present good quality cases to support yeah. why they do that. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I, I've got to be honest, I don't have much respect for people who know or suspect or have had weird experiences but won't talk about them because, you know, they're worried about not getting on to, you know, next year's this conference and that right, conference right. and the other conference. To me, that's that's when you've crossed the line from being objective and to just becoming, well, you know, um, like promoter. a mindless tool more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. No, I absolutely agree with you there. All right, so maybe it's more of a problem that the people aren't getting presented the proper information or uh, more mind-opening information. That yeah, I think it's not so much they're not. You know, I don't think, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with you know conferences still putting on lectures about FOIA material and radar reports. Nothing wrong with that. But if conferences are going to be honest with themselves and with their audiences, they really should open the audiences up to all the other stuff as well. Um, because if they don't, they're doing what they accuse the government of, which is censoring. You know, and you mm. can't have it both ways. Either you want open debate, you know, you can't have open, de you demand open debate from the government if you're not going to be open with your own community. Exactly. Um, yeah. 
And I don't, unfortunately, I, you know, certain conferences, I just know they won't put on certain things that um, are going to rock the boat because they, you know, it, part of it is the cringe factor. They're like, oh, do we have to listen to this? Because they, they have this lofty belief that oh, God. it's all just, you know, this or that. Yeah. That kind of thing, and um, you know, why is why doesn't Nick have a tie on? You know, why does he have his ears pierced and his head shaved? <laughs> <you know? laughs> so why doesn't he have a three-piece suit or something? And I thought, well, because that's not me. You know, you get what you get. Yeah, I'm not going to change for someone. Um, but again, I get that at conferences as as well, where people think that you know it's all got to be done a certain way. Well, doing things a certain way really hasn't got us that many answers. You know, it's like I've said to people before, you could have a researcher of, say, the Flying Triangle mystery. They might have 2,000 really good reports, close-up reports in their filing cabinet, you know, or on a thumb drive or whatever. But having 2,000 reports doesn't actually tell you what the origin and the nature of the phenomenon is. Is it military? Is it extraterrestrial? Is it a combination of both? What it tells you is there a hell of a lot of people are seeing flying triangles. Right, exactly. But yeah, sometimes yeah. people do equate data, collected data, with evidence of the nature of the phenomenon, and it isn't. And I think that's something that's got to be got across to people, is that it's not enough to collect reports and share them. We've got to figure out what the origin of the reports is. And sometimes, I mean, that seems obvious to us, but sometimes that actually gets lost, you know. People will tell a fascinating story at a conference in a lecture about a photograph they've analyzed of this object. Uh, but then, you know, they don't really focus on what they think it is. It's like, well, we've done an analysis and this suggests it's a 30-foot diameter object at a distance of 200 feet, etc., etc. Well, that's fine. It tells us there's something weird in the sky. But did you check to see, you know, are there any military bases in the area where there's a history of weird drones being tested? Um, is there like a history of UFO reports in the area from the 50s and 60s? Often that kind of thing gets overlooked. Yeah. Yeah, well, like a lot of times with this UFO thing, it's like it's like if you picked up every bug you see on the ground, it doesn't make you an entomologist. It just makes you some guy who picks up bugs. Yeah, you've got a big collection of bugs, you know, but you're not a bug expert. And, exactly. Um, you know, but um, all these things, I think, you know, are areas that ufology needs to understand and appreciate and and expand on um because otherwise you know we're just going to be like we were 50 years ago a bunch of groups collecting reports and um right. i admit you i'm not claiming i have all the answers um but i do think that variety in terms of how we address these issues and how we approach the phenomenon with an open mind rather than say you know, the worst thing you can do is go into do your research with a view to confirming the ETH. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's a, that is literally the worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is go into it open-minded and solve it wherever it leads, regardless of what the answer is, you know. Right, right. It's like those shows you watch, like on Dateline or whatever, when they're like, somebody gets murdered and they're sure it's the yeah. boyfriend yeah. or something. It's like, yeah. The yeah. next thing you know, they show you them. It's like 30 years later, they let them out because the DNA didn't. It's like, oh, no. Yeah. Well, what would you do? Let's put it this way. How would you like to see – like Greg and I have talked about it where it's like more emphasis placed sort of on the witnesses in these instances of UFO encounters. Like if we were if we were going to sort of advise the 
UFO folks of the future, aside from having an open mind? Like, is there any kind of information we can collect that we're missing out on, aside from, from maybe, like, more about the people that see the UFOs? Yeah, well, the one area, I think, is that what I found, people have had a lot of really significant UFO encounters, and even men in black encounters, they've had, um, and particularly with men in black encounters, they've often had a lot of paranormal experiences in their lives. Now, I think there's often a tendency for UFO investigators, particularly those who are sort of just, you know, cemented in the ETH, is that they'll get the information on the witness, who they are. You go, okay, it's Mr. Smith. You know, he works at the local Walmart. And he saw this when he was driving home after his shift. You know, it was the early hours of the morning. Here's, here's what he said, etc., etc. I think one of the areas that would benefit from more research is actually digging into the background of the person and seeing what other weird things have happened to them throughout their lives. Mm. Have they had out-of-body experiences? Have they had encounters with men in black? Have they seen cryptids like Bigfoot? Um, have they had like a lifetime of weird synchronicities? Um, you know, have they seen dead relatives? Um, not necessarily that these things are all interconnected, but sometimes, you know, maybe a certain portion of the population have an ability to see, you know, paranormal phenomena than, better than the rest of us. So in other words, don't treat the witness as just a UFO witness, see if there's other things that have gone on in their lives that might actually help us understand just this very latest aspect of what's going on in the weirdness, you know, mm. in terms of what they're seeing. And I think that often gets overlooked. And you do find, you know, getting to... I know, I know a lot of people have come to know as friends. They've had a UFO sighting, and, you know, then you look into it and you're chatting, you find out they've had a lot of weird synchronicities. Um... I mean, Greg, for example, I mean, Greg, you know, this isn't anything private. You know, Greg's been quite open about this, like in the 90s. You know, he was investigating UFO sightings, but um, he was um, corresponding with the late Dr. Carla Turner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all their mail between the two of them arrived open, ripped open and resealed, you know, and he had weird stuff like that going down, um, you know, as well as the, the UFO research he was doing. So in other words... Very often, people in ufology, whether they're ufologists or they're witnesses, there's often other stuff going on. And I think that we need to not just look at the witnesses from, as I said, from that encounter, but look at their, you know, their potential life mm. um, for possible other answers as well. Now, I know, I don't know if we talked about this. I know you've done sort of, uh, you, you did the book, uh, that was sort of like government documents on celebrities and stuff like that. I did a book called um, Celebrity Secrets. Right, right. Now, what, what yeah. I'm wondering is, uh, have you or anybody else, maybe John Greenwald has these on his website, I haven't looked, but uh, oh, I, would be sorry. Uh, yeah. I would be interested in seeing, there's probably not much to it, but I'd like to know if you if there's anything sort of in the files of these of these late UFO researchers. Or or UFO, let's say, uh, field players like a Phil mm. Glass or something like that. I mean, any of these guys that have passed away, and you can yeah. get their files. It would be interesting well, to see uh, if there's anything in there, like John Keel or or, mm. or Fuller. You know, it'd be interesting if any of the, if any of them have anything in there that would be interesting. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure if there is a file on Keel, that would be really interesting. Somebody should file for that. But I mean. The FBI, for example, has released its files on people like Georgia Damsky and a bunch of other contactees like Truman Bethram, uh, George Van Tassel, 
the British police force, they have a division, like an intelligence division, called um, Special Branch. And just recently, well, actually a few years ago now, they um, declassified their surveillance file of George King, who set up the Aetherius Society, now, um, which is like a you know, definitive um, contactee movement. Mm-hmm. But one of the main reasons why the FBI opened these files in the 50s was predominantly because people like Adamski were saying the aliens were communists. You know, this was the height of the Cold War and McCarthyism and Reds under the beds. And, um, you know, the FBI was legitimately concerned. Are these people trying to spread communism but using the UFO subject as like a cover to do it? Yeah. So, but then you have other files, um, like I said, on George King in England. Um, The Australian government has released some of their files, research files on UFO groups because they perceive them as being sort of potentially subversive, you know, because they weren't just sitting at home watching TV and being good little boys and girls, you know what I mean? They were asking questions. Um, And so, you know, a lot of files have been released, um, and people are also on the periphery of UFOs, like Wilhelm Reich, you know, the whole organ thing. I mean, his FBI file's been declassified. That's about 800 pages. Um... There's a NICAP file, uh, which isn't a particularly long file. It just has background information on it. In it, um, you know. So you have things like this. I mean, there's no smoking gun where, so far right, that I've right. seen, where you know there's like a 300-page file on, say, George Adamski, because somebody's investigating all the claims of the Space Brothers and all that. Hmm. Very often, the files reflect something that you know they're watching the person because. The person, you know, the, the relevant UFO researcher might also be tied to, like, I don't know, animal rights groups or protesting about the Patriot Act or whatever. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, and that does happen. You often find people in ufology cross over into other areas that, where you can see agencies might watch them. And it's not always just because they're a UFO researcher. It's because they may be doing other stuff. And um, so... You know, I haven't come across, like I said, a smoking gun from an agency that watches, you know, that watches the UFO researchers purely for the UFO issues. Hmm. All right. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see. I might have to do like a freedom of information. I always say this, but to check out into some of these these folks. But I mean, Kale would be a good one. Yeah. Kale would be a really good one because if there's anything on him, I mean, um, he's probably going to cover so much weird stuff. You know. All right, now before I let you go, I think we deserve credit, you and I. We were like right at the cusp of this whole pumpkin thing that's gone on now in the last couple of years. Have you noticed this, that everything's got pumpkin flavor now? Oh, yeah, I can't say I'm a fan of that much. but um... I'm not either, but I remember when you came to visit me, dude, we had pumpkin beer, and it was novel at the time. It was unique. Yeah, yeah that was like about... What was that, about 2009, was it, something like that? It was quite a while ago, yeah. It was like if six, I remember six, right, it was the, the time... When we did the conference in Boston, where there was like the huge snowstorm, and uh, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to fly back. I don't know if you remember it. Um, it was like we did the conference, and as we were sort of driving back on the Sunday, the snow was just like oh, you yeah. could not see. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was like so, a horrible storm. It was a terrible, terrible yeah. storm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember yeah. we just sort of hunkered down at your place and sat around and drank beer all night and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> pumpkin beer. At the time, I was like, yeah. "What do they think of next? Pumpkin, pumpkin flavored yeah. beer." And now, like everywhere yeah. I go, it's pumpkin everything. Oh yeah, I mean, there's so many ridiculous. I mean, 
you know, give me a cold beer. You know, I like German beer and some of the, you know, the stronger beers, the lager type beers. But I mean, you know, don't put this in it and don't put that in it. Just give me something that's going to get me loaded. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> there you go. Man after my own heart. All right. Well, let's get going. What's the hub that we should send people to to find out more from you and uh, what you got oh, going well, on? The, well, a couple of places. I mean, um, people can reach me at my blog, which is if you type if you type in Nick Redfern plus World of Whatever, that'll take you to my blog. That's the blog's title. But the address is Nick Redfern Fortean, F O R T E A N. Nick Redfern Fortean. Dot dot com, or people can catch me at uh, Facebook. There's if you type in Nick Redfern, there are a few Nick Redferns, but scroll down and you'll see me. Um, or Twitter, you know, um, you either of those, any of those three. Um, yeah. I'm always happy to chat with people. Got any questions, want to share information, you know, just, just let me know. So. Nice, nice. And, of course, the books we've been talking about tonight, folks, Bloodline of the Gods, Chupacabra Road Trip, The Bigfoot Book, and Men in Black. All those are available right now, so go pick them up and add them to your Nick Redfern library. If you're like me, you've got like a whole shelf at this point, plus, uh, of Nick Redfern books. So kudos to you, man. I said it a long time ago. You're like the Brad well, Steiger of this generation. You're putting out so much <laughs> stuff, it's amazing. Oh, I appreciate that, because Brad's actually one of my uh, favorite authors. He's one of the people who got me into the subject when I was like 11. You know, I started reading his books and Keels. And, uh, so without people like Brad and John Keel, I probably wouldn't have done what I've done, you know. And I wouldn't be drinking pumping, pumpkin beer. So. There you go. All right. <laughs> well, we're going to try and get you back to Boston sometime in the near future. I All promise. right, cool. So see what we can do. But thank you very right. much uh, once again for coming on the show, Nick. I really do appreciate it, buddy. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. Have a good night. You too. I think Nick's gone now, so let me do the plugs. You're listening to Banal of America Audio, folks. If uh, you're on Blog Talk, you have no idea what this is. This is Banal of America Audio. Your best chance to hear all the shows is at Banal of America you can find out uh, more about that at B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. As I said, if you're listening to Blog Talk in the archives, you're missing out on all our episodes that don't go live. So we tape some shows and put them out on a whole different feed. The big feed, the main feed, you want to find that at Benal of America. I don't have my usual uh, notes here for the closeout of the program. I'm still in a completely different uh, quote-unquote studio since the uh, phone meltdown with Eric Wallet, So I'm uh, in the midst of a transitional phase, a liminal phase, as we've said here on the program before. Uh, what else should I plug? Banal of America on Facebook. We're on there. Uh, just punch in Banal of America. You can like us there. You'll find out about uh, upcoming episodes and all that good stuff. And, uh, of course, what you just listened to was a two-and-a-half-hour live program with Nick Redfern that came at you absolutely free, and we've got 200-plus free episodes in the archive at Banal of America. All of it is uh, no cost to you folks, but it costs me something. It costs me uh, a lot to keep it all up and running and maintained. So we ask you to uh, make donations and help us out. You can do so by heading over to banalofamerica.com and clicking the PayPal button or sending us a snail mail donation to the P.O. Box. I think that's it on plugs. Uh, no guest to plug just yet. I'm being very particular in who we have on the show now. We're very close to the end of Season 9. We've got maybe 9 or 10 episodes left, so I don't want to waste a spot on this show here in this season on a guest that I'm not dying to talk to. So I'm being very, very particular on who we have on the show here as we close out the season because I want to really search out and talk to the people that 
get my mind going and uh, get me thinking about new things and thinking about new ideas. That's why we had Nick on tonight. That's how we, why we had Eric Wallet on a couple weeks ago. So I think the pace of the program may slow just a little bit here in the fall, but I don't want to say that for sure because I'm thinking also about doing sort of a a run of uh, creepy, spooky episodes in October. We've never really embraced the whole October uh, theme on the show before, but we might just do it this time around. So I'm talking to some folks who do spooky, creepy stuff, and hopefully we can get some of them on the show in October. So maybe we'll get back to a weekly setup, more likely or not, uh, every 10 days or so. And, of course, stay tuned to Been All of America and Been All of America on Facebook for more information on uh, what the next episode will be and uh, future episodes down the line. So, with all that said, thank you so much for listening, folks. Until next time, this is Tim and all. Thanking you for listening and signing off.